0: We're in the House of Salmons, here to save the day. Vamps and zombies, ghosts and werewolves, make them go away. Let's talk about your favorite movies, have some laughs and fun. Then when you're scared of deep dark shadows, you won't need to run. Morning is coming, there's nothing more to fear. You can come out to play.
1: Brian and Jamie, remember, are always here. And that's all there is to say.
0: Hello, horror fans. Welcome to episode 24 of Horror in the House of Salmons. We are getting very close to the end of this season. So close, as a matter of fact, that we are on X for this episode. And we don't have any movies, really, for X. I mean, we we pretty much exhausted them. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I teased on on previously that I was like, I get X, you know, meaning the movie X. But we did a review of that film for Patreon, so it's kind of pointless to do it here as well. I mean, we'd just be rehashing. So we decided, meaning Brian, that X could be a free space.
1: That's because I have great ideas, and that was one of them.
0: Yeah, well, it was a great idea. It'll give us the opportunity to talk about anything we want, which is kind of what's going to end up happening next season. Yeah. And, I mean, it will be a little structured, but, you know, we'll we'll be a little freer to discuss the things we want to discuss. But, more on that later. Brian,
1: how are you? I'm doing a okay. We've been lucky this summer. It hasn't been too horrendously hot, knock on wood, knock on wood. I know a lot of places have it much worse than us.
0: Yes, I'm very sorry to our friends in Europe and in the UK, and I'm very sorry to our (laughs) friends in Texas and California and everywhere that is suffering. Uh, I do feel
1: bad for you. We've had some hot days and all that, but not as bad as most summers and not as bad as other places, so uh, it's been good uh, doing yard work, keeping myself busy. You know, the usual.
0: Well, as for me, oh, I just, I went back to the eye specialist and did some tests and things are looking good. Yay! So I don't have to, the condition that I have, I do have to keep it monitored, but he did not have to jab a needle in my eye. So that's a good thing. Any day I don't get a needle jabbed in my eye, I consider that a win and I don't have to go back till November. So that is good. Glasses are helping. hmm And uh, so hopefully it'll be a little more smoother sailing from now on. But we have so much fun stuff to talk about. Indeed. Indeed. We got a lot of feedback. Which we love. And which we adore. We absolutely love it and uh, appreciate everyone who comments on anything. But we actually got several people who gave us lists of possession films. Because which is awesome. Because we did, for Bumps in the Night, we did our list of top ten possession films that are not The Exorcist. <laughs> and I'm very excited to say that when we invited people to share what their list would be with us, we got several who did.
1: Yeah, we got tons of feedback about a whole bunch of stuff, which is awesome, so let's get to it. Okay, well, what are we starting with? I guess we can start with the whole list of things, because that was part of our V episode, so it's like two back now.
0: Alright, first we have Debbie Lynn, who says, Another good episode. I remember watching Vice Squad when I was a lot younger and being traumatized by it. (laughs) I haven't seen it since, but I might revisit it to see how I feel about it now.
1: Good old Ramrod.
0: Of course, back then I slept with the lights on for three nights after seeing Carnival of Souls. Aw, oh, well, that's a good movie. Yes. Uh, here's my possession movie list, excluding The Exorcist, of course. Good on you. So, I don't know if she's going least
1: favorite to favorite. Well, start looking at what she starts off with, I'm going to assume that's her number one. Because it should be. Okay. In my humble opinion.
0: Well, then I will go from the bottom, and she says, Jennifer's Body. Eh. The Right. Eh. The Take. That's a movie that I want to give another chance. I know, I need to. Because I really love Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, I just. I remember when I first saw it, I didn't hate it. I was just meh. I honestly don't remember much about it, so I would like to watch it again. The Taking of Deborah Logan. Yay, that should be higher. The Cleansing Hour. No, that's a good one. The Possession of Michael King. I don't know if I know that one. I don't either. Well, I have to look that up. Yeah, cool. The Medium. Alright. Holy crap, that's a good movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Demons. Yay! Night of the Demons. Yay! Evil Dead. Yay! Exorcist Three. Yay! Yay. (laughs) Very good list. She says, I didn't include Exorcism of Emily Rose because I think the courtroom scenes distract from the actual events of the supposed possession and break the overall atmosphere. Also, like the sacrament, I think the real story is much more horrific than the movie. I I will agree with that. I do, however, love those courtroom scenes. Yeah, but you I think it's—I think it's just a different way to approach something. Yeah, and like that. I'm a sucker
1: for a good courtroom job. Mm-hmm. I have no aspirations to be a lawyer or anything like that. But I don't know, it's just it's—it's it's fun to see the lawyers, you know, duking it out verbally and trying to smart each other. I don't know, I'm just a sucker for it. I agree. I enjoy it.
0: Next up, we have a list. Yay! From Paul Moscone. Paul yay. says. Thanks for doing the possession movies list. Of course, it was Paul's idea. Good, good idea. Was great to hear both your favorite and another top episode. Nice. Hey, so mine are, and I again, I'm not sure. I think he did the same thing.
1: Yeah. So I would
0: start from the bottom and okay. right up. And you say, oh, because he says and. Okay. So uh, starting from the bottom, Veronica, The Devil. Okay. Yeah, that was a good movie. The Devil Inside, Taking of Deborah Logan. The Devil
1: Inside, really? Isn't that the one that says, for more of the story, go to the website?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I believe that was the one where you said,
1: fuck that movie. (laughs) Yeah, fuck that movie. I mean, I'm glad somebody likes it, but wow. That is surprising. Uh, Keep going. Uh,
0: Taking of Deborah
1: Logan. Yay, that should be higher. (laughs) Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yay.
0: Paranormal Activity.
1: You know, I like... The first three paranormal normal activity movies, a lot of people give them shit because, oh, they're so mainstream and blah, 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 and, you know, they've gone off the rails, and I do agree with that, but I think the first three are solid.
0: I do, too, and I also like the marked ones. I didn't like that one. The fourth one I didn't love, but I honestly should go through all of those again. Maybe we should do that franchise. Oh, boy, couldn't we? <laughs> uh, hereditary. Nice. Fallen. Nice. Good on you. Conjuring. Okay. One. Last Exorcism. Good. And Evil Dead. Yay! And then he said, I wanted to say The Entity and Pool, but then, listening to Brian's rules, I had to rethink. Was there an actual possession
1: in those movies? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but, they're both good movies.
0: No, they're both excellent movies. We actually covered the Entity in this season for the letter E. Okay, and Ponty we uh,
1: covered last season. Yeah,
0: no, and the, there isn't a possession in the entity that I recall. It
1: no, it's, unless
0: like I don't. It would if there was anyone possessed in that movie, it'd be like her son or something like that. But no, I don't think there was. And it's really just a haunting or a um by a very horny ghost. A like i think it was more a demonic presence so it was um oh what do you call it what do you call an infestation Mm. and then with pontypool it was like a virus yeah yeah so but excellent list thank you paul and then we have a comment from abraham who says this episode was so much fun oh yay Uh, hearing about possession films was a lot more surprising than i would have ever suspected If you did a list of slashers, even if you excluded Halloween and Friday the 13th, I think we'd all be able to guess the majority of the list since they've been talked to death on various shows. However, you guys really throw me for some loops and made me realize how good the exorcism slash possession subgenre is even without the exorcist.
1: Yeah, I was surprised by that too. Uh, it was just something that because maybe because there's so many bad ones and they just they want to be the exorcist or they just blatantly rip, rip off the exorcist or they try to out exorcist the exorcist and it's just like you're not going to do that. Try something else. I think when you do that, when you go, OK, maybe use the exorcist for inspiration or something, but let's not do that again, you can actually come up with some pretty good movies.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds if you just throw it out there, possession films. You're going to automatically think of all the ones that are Exorcist clones. Yes. But if you stop and really think about it, there is a wide range of films that involve possession, with all kinds of different motives and storylines, and even you know, found footage versus traditional filmmaking. uh, There's just they're all over
1: the place. Oh yeah. I mean, one that keeps coming up again and again and again, usually for number one or whatever, is The Evil Dead. And, you know, that has nothing to do with The Exorcist. But it's an amazing movie. It was a benchmark, and it's about people getting possessed.
0: Yeah. All right, we have one from Nicole, and she says... Late to the party again, but another great episode. Aw, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I absolutely love lists. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So do we. I really love lists. I think lists are fun. And this was a good one. For some reason, possession movies really scare me. I don't believe in it, but if it happened, it would be terrifying. How do you fight or run away from that without giving too much thought to it? Here's my list. Okay, starting at the bottom, going up to number one. Uh, Number ten is The Cleansing Hour. Good movie. Then Demons. Excellent movie. Night of the Demons. Excellent movie. Paranormal Activity.
1: Yep. Prince of Darkness. Hmm. See, that was one of the ones that was on my fence for me. I guess they do get possessed.
0: Yeah, like Alice Cooper.
1: Yeah, and plus all the various other people inside the church who get the green goo inside them. Excellent movie, by the way. Then
0: number five, Evil Dead.
1: Nice. Hereditary. Nice. Exorcism of Emily Rose. Nice.
0: Taking of Deborah Logan. Yay! And number one, Exorcist 3. Nice! That's my girl.
1: Yeah. That is a good, solid
0: list. She says, I think it was so inventive to add dementia into the storyline of Deborah Logan. Oh, yeah. A real-life horror that many of us will have to deal with in life.
1: Yeah, that movie, it's so damn good. Like I've said numerous times, I wish I wrote it. That's how much I love it. And so no higher praise. I can give something. Even without their supernatural element, it's a sad, scary movie. But then when you add that in, then you add the mystery and just everything goes along with it. It is phenomenal.
0: Yeah, for sure. I love it. Jennifer Carpenter is a great actress yes, and she, is. she so impressed me in Emily Rose. People don't talk about her performance enough. Oh no, you're right about that. It's a good one. And you know, she's right though. And that is a that is a name that you never hear. Nobody and no one ever mentions Jennifer Carpenter unless they're specifically talking about Dexter, Emily Rose, <laughs> or Dexter or on, you know, very rare occasion Quarantine. Oh yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> I've all about quarantine. But
0: nobody really mentions her, and that's a shame, because she is a good actress. Everything that Jamie said about Hereditary was spot on. Toni Collette is a powerhouse and deserves all the awards. Yep. As a mother, that movie shook me to my core. I couldn't watch anything for several days after I first saw it. Nice. That's when you know a movie did its job. I have not seen Incubus or Inner Demons, but I'm adding them to my watch list. Good. If you watch them, let us know what you think. I absolutely believe that Session 9 is a possession movie and almost made my list.
1: Yeah, that was one I was kind of debating. It is such a great movie. I love it to pieces. Just for the sake of not having people go, well, that wasn't a possession movie. And because there's so many good possession movies, I didn't include. But, you know, I'd be totally fine with somebody if they did. Yeah.
0: And one last thing about the episode. I fucking love The Void. Yay! Good on One of my favorite Lovecraft inspirations. I agree. It checked so many boxes for me. Cosmic horror, isolated location, hospital setting with a realistic reason for why it's so empty. Yes, I love that. And a bleak (laughs) ending. Yep. It's so beautiful and disturbing, great special effects, a movie I can pop in
1: anytime and watch it. Well, I agree 100%. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nicole, for the feedback. Okay. Uh, from Steven Scott, he posted a link
1: to the awesome music video, or at least the song, Neon Slime, <laughs> which was the song from, by from Squad. Vice Squad and it was, which was sung performed
0: by, by Wings Hauser. Vice yes. <laughs> <laughs> Squad, he says. Thanks for bringing that one up. I remember watching it a dozen times or so on HBO yep. back in the early 1980s. Great action movie that has a lot of grittiness to it. By the way, Wings Houser also sings that god-awful theme song, Neon Slime.
1: What do you mean, god-awful? That song's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, uh... in the Neon Slime. <laughs> wow, well, that was pretty good. It's like he's right here. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what, guys? I'm so excited because, obviously, we did Vice Squad for the V episode, but we're doing another Gary Sherman movie today.
1: Yes. Yeah, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, that guy is a legit badass when it comes to making movies.
0: All right. Uh, let's see. Moving on to the W episode, the first comment when I posted the show was from Lucas, and he says, you mean Jamie picked a werewolf movie? I'd never have guessed. (laughs) Yeah, we were so
1: surprised.
0: (laughs) Uh, Jason Gray says, I saw Wolf in theaters. We went to see it after graduation that year. I was in 11th grade, and I still remember coming home late at night, turning on the TV... And seeing coverage of the now infamous O.J. Simpson Bronco Chase, <laughs> because we had been so completely isolated from the news, from being in the theater to listening to tapes in the car, also a Bronco, funnily enough, that it was a total surprise to come home and discover what had happened
1: while I was out of it. Yeah. And it's funny, because I didn't, I didn't put two and two together. I just didn't realize... That had come out uh, right when all that crazy OJ stuff was going on. It's neat how something like that can timestamp stamp something.
0: Oh yeah, I mean that happens to me all the time. I tie things to other significant events. I remember where I was when I was uh, when the OJ thing came on TV. I was painting the kitchen. Hmm.
1: I don't remember the OJ thing. I remember stuff like the like the Challenger explosion. Uh, I remember that. 9 11, funny, both the Challenger explosion and 9 11, I was uh, sick. I was homesick, Challenger explosion, homesick from school, and 9 uh, 11, homesick from work. And so I just happened to be here watching TV when, you know, things went nuts. Wow. Moral of that story is if I stay home sick, uh, bad stuff happens.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like really hugely significant bad stuff. Apparently, not even just like little things. Uh, I was home from college when the OJ thing happened, and I was painting the kitchen. And I remember I could see into the, I could see the TV in the living room from where I was in the kitchen. And I just kind of I remember standing there for the longest time with the paint roller in my hand, just staring at the TV, like what the hell is going on. <laughs> challenger I was in school we actually watched it in school and then I wrote a book about it called the challenger's last challenge (laughs) and then for 9-11 I was actually home too but it was I was not working at the time I had just quit my job as a nanny and was waiting to start my job at the infectious diseases lab and it was kind of like a little lull in between and I just happened to be home and I remember I woke up that morning and there were all these messages on my answering machine from the woman that I'd used to work for and she'd been trying to get in touch with me because all this was happening and she was just, you know, like kind of freaking out. And we were friends and, and I woke up and there were like seven messages on my answering machine from her and I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then I turned on the television, you know, and that was something else. All right, well... Not to bring everybody down. Uh, What, what, uh, was that it? Okay, well, I guess that's gonna wrap up our correspondence segment of the show. And from there, the only thing left to do is to talk about the movies we came to talk about. What, what?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, so I guess we can start with yours, although it has two different titles. One would be before mine, one would be after, but I think its official first title would be... Ahead of mine. So, I believe, as Deathline, and then over here it came out as Raw Meat, but I'm wondering, I know the Raw Meat version was cut, but I wonder if the Deathline version was, because they mention something in the special features or something, like, oh, this is the uncut version of the film, but they don't mention that this is how it was released in the UK when it first came out. So I just wonder if it was cut from the beginning, and they just brought it all back in, or what?
0: Yeah, maybe when AIP bought it and called it Raw Meat, that was the only thing they did. Maybe all they did
1: was change the title. The stuff that was cut was some of the gore scenes and blood and all that, and usually it's the UK that has a problem with that. I mean, they did have the whole video nasties, after all. Yeah. But this was in the 70s, so maybe this is before they got all, you know, stupid and, oh my goodness, the violence, oh! And maybe they had more balls back in the 70s. They kind of lost them during the 80s, and now they found them again. Traditionally, America, because of puritanical bullshit roots, has a problem with sex. But violence is A-okay, whereas a lot of countries in Europe have it the other way around. Which
0: honestly makes sense. Well, yeah, Uh, sex
1: is a part of life. It's something everybody does and everybody likes. And, you know, you kind of need to do it to, you know, advance the species. It's natural. But because America's got a hard-on about nudity, I mean, hell, you show a nipple on a Super Bowl and everybody loses their fucking minds.
0: Still. There's still talk about
1: that. (laughs) Hey! Pugs beating up on Wednesday.
0: The Bride of the ABCs of Hidden Horror. Okay, and we are back, and as we've already said, we're going to be talking about Deathline from 1972. This is a British film that was made by an American director. That American director is Gary Sherman, who also gave us... Vice Squad. Hey, look at that. Like we mentioned earlier. It's almost and, like we planned that. Uh, well, we didn't. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't. It just turns out I like a whole bunch of Gary Sherman's yeah. movies because he also gave us
1: Dead and Buried. That's right. And which I think we covered on the first season?
0: Uh no, we actually didn't. I checked. It was you did a show with Ricky Morgan.
1: You did a guest okay. spot on Ricky's show talking about that. Great movie. Uh I've oh, never is. seen Dead and Buried. Highly recommended. It's a zombie movie, but it's not like 99% of the zombie movies out there.
0: And here's another thing. Those are his first three movies.
1: I know. You know, there was somebody who, you know, infamously tweeted recently about Jordan Peele. You know, has any director had three good movies in a row? Yeah, Jackass, a lot have. A lot. Case in point, this guy. This guy, named guy, that nobody talks about anymore. You know, he's definitely slipped under the radar. He had three bangers in a row. Yeah, right out of the gate. Not to mention, you know, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, and all these other people, but just I, I was always amazed and stupefied by that idiotic quote. Oh, that was a stupid comment. Well, even Jordan Peele didn't yeah. agree with that comment. I like how he shut him down, too. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: uh, he also did the infamous Poltergeist 3. And while I don't love that movie, it looks amazing.
1: He does a lot of good things in that movie with reflections. And this was years before anybody else was doing anything like that. The movie, in and of itself, isn't all that great. And it's also made worse because poor little girl, Heather... She was sick. Yeah, and she died before it finished. So there's an obvious fake girl that they keep holding, making sure, you know, not to show her face. And that puts a, you know, a dark cloud over everything. Even without that movie would be no great shakes. But I do like watching that movie simply for all the in-camera tricks they do with reflections. Because this, unlike the recent, you know, Candyman or... The movie Mirrors or any. This was before CGI. So everything you see, they actually had to think of a way to do it. And I love when a director can do that, or, you know, cinematographer, whatever. But they have the smarts to do that without just relying, well, we'll do it with CGI. And it'll look like ass, but who cares? And so watch that movie again, if you haven't seen it in a long time, and just notice all the stuff with your functions. It's really good. It's really fun.
0: Yeah, and just look at the production design. And the DP on this, his name was Alex Thompson on Deathline. His name was Alex Thompson. And I have to say, just if you just read the synopsis of the film, you would picture maybe something like Humongous, or yeah, good, uh, good call. Anthropophagus, or... Something oh.
1: recently creep, and not yeah, the not you know, the, the
0: subway one. Yes, not the yeah,
1: the Christopher um, Smith.
0: But creep. you wouldn't necessarily think it would be an elevated film. I mean, it's a gory movie. It's a it's a.
1: <laughs> it's Are you a saying this gross is elevated movie? horror.
0: No, what I'm saying is that when you actually watch the film, like if you look at the poster, particularly the poster for Raw Meat, which is the one that I used on our episode poster, because it is a badass poster. I love it. I mean, I guess AIP knows, t- knows how to make posters.
1: Well, well, poster aside, what do you think about the title switch? Do you think Raw Meat is a better title, or Deathline?
0: I actually prefer Deathline. So do I. I think Raw Meat makes it... One, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, I guess they're eating raw meat, but... And they, but it's so stupid. On the poster they refer to them as the raw meat of humankind,
1: which makes no sense. Yeah, you know? in regards to the bad guys, not their victims. Right. So the bad guys are the raw meat of humankind and it's like, uh, okay. <laughs>
0: but I, I do really like the title deathline. Yeah. But you know how it is when they buy when they buy a movie and they wanna release it, they gotta sensationalize it as much as they can. And they're really but good at "Death
1: But is a good, you know, title, too.
0: I agree. I don't know
1: why they felt the need to change it. I don't know. I mean, we're talking about AIP. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but you know what sucks is that they actually got an offer from Paramount yep. <laughs> for this movie. And, you know, um, Alan Ladd Jr. was a producer on this film who is the son of Alan Ladd. Obviously. That's why they call him Junior. And then his brother, David Ladd, played the lead in this film, the American guy. Yeah. And it just it was just because they decided that they well, Alan Ladd Jr. said, I think you should put an American in the film because it'll give us more A wider you know, A audience. wider audience yeah. for distribution. And David, his brother, just happened to be living with him in London at the time. So he's What like, a coincidence. Hey. <laughs> so they got an offer from Paramount to buy this film after it was after they screened it. And then <laughs> so Gary Sherman calls uh, Alan Ladd Jr. and he's like, hey, we gotta, you know, Paramount's gonna buy the movie, and and Ladd was like, um, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> They've already sold it to American International, and they're like fuck. <laughs> Which, honestly, I don't blame them. Now, as much as I love AIP...
1: It is a company, you know, Roger Corman's in there, so <laughs> it definitely has a stink to it, at times. They make some some good movies, and they make some really horrible ones, but it doesn't have the prestige of Paramount. Right.
0: So they missed out on that, and that's kind of sad. Yeah. But, uh, you have in this film... Apart from the previously mentioned David Ladd, who wasn't really anyone at the time. And I think, honestly, I think he did just a couple more pictures after that as an actor. And then he became a producer. So he never really got steeped in the whole acting thing. But beyond that, you have a cameo by Christopher Lee. Yep. Which really is just a cameo. He's in one scene. But it's Christopher Lee. And he has a gravitas. He Mm -hmm. comes with presence. He was born with it. You know, I can imagine him popping out of the womb as a child in the entire operating theater, just standing back and applauding. (laughs) Of course, I'm hoping he wasn't six foot six when he popped out of the womb. (laughs) Um, Then we have a hilarious performance by Donald Pleasance.
1: And while I'll say I like this movie, full stop. This is just a good movie. But Donald Pleasance, he does take it to a whole other level, just because he's so much fun here. He's a police inspector, but he's not like just
0: crazy,
1: but he's a bit off. Yeah.
0: (laughs) He's constantly screaming about his tea. Yeah. He's very unhappy that they're using tea bags. I think
1: that's a common English thing. Well. I don't like tea bags over there.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, you want to make your own, you know, and they have tea balls. Mm Mm-hmm. I have a tea ball. I never use it, but <laughs> I have used it, but I mostly just gravitate toward tea bags. Hey, it's, so do I. It's easy. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he does not like tea bags, and he's unhappy about that, and he's constantly screaming about needing his tea. And uh, I think that's hilarious. He is just, his delivery is very funny. He does a lot of little, I call them Steve McQueenies, and it's because Steve McQueen was really, Well-known for doing little things in the background, even when he wasn't the main focus Mm -hmm. of a particular scene, he would do little things like flip his bandana that was around his neck, or play with something, move his hat around, like whatever he was doing, he would just do little physicalities in the background to draw attention to himself, Yes, which did not enamor... no. (laughs) <laughs> the other actors to him because they don't like that. The other actors don't like it when you're taking the spotlight away. I think it's
1: stealing focus or something yeah. like that.
0: And Donald Pleasance is really... Now, he was when he was on screen, he was the focus. Yeah. But he would have these little things that he would do that were just funny.
1: Well, know? it's one of those... A lot of actors, they keep their hands busy all the time. Or they have little tics like... Uh, Brad Pitt likes to eat a lot on screen. Mm -hmm. He's always munching something. Now, not in every single scene, but in a good majority of them. That's just his tick. He's always eating or, you know, doing something. That's why a lot of actors used to like smoking. Not necessarily for the smoking per se, although some of them did, but it was something to occupy their hand. Just keeping them busy, so they're not just standing there waiting to spout out their next line.
0: Well, yeah, and then you can feel kind of awkward when you don't have something to do with your hands. You know, you're just sort of standing there with your hands by your side because it's not natural. But you don't want to get too crazy when you're talking with your hands because that doesn't look natural either, and it's very distracting. So, you know, having a little something, holding a glass of something, writing, you know, any little things like that kind of keep your hands busy but also look natural. And he, <laughs> uh, he just—I don't know—I love him in this. I love everything about Donald Pleasance in this film. Yes. I just think he's fantastic. And there's a bit where he goes up against uh, Christopher Lee because Christopher Lee is in is MI5, and there is a person that go an OBE that goes missing, and the police inspector is wanting to do an investigation about this, but MI5 steps in, and they're like, uh, basically no, keep your snoot out of what doesn't belong to you.
1: Because the guy has some political secrets or military secrets in his head, so, you know, they want to clamp down and everything and control everything.
0: Also, it turns out he was apparently pretty kinky. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it, but Christopher Lee and Donald Pleasence together, I just think, were great. They kind of squared off against each other. And if you look at the way the scene is filmed, you'd think they it was one of those instances where they weren't in the same room because whenever they're filming it, the camera is dead on Christopher Lee. And then there's just uh, like a reverse shot dead on Donald Pleasance. And they never shared the screen. But they actually were in the same room. The reason they did that was because Christopher Lee was fucking tall. Oh, yeah. and huge. So they and had Donald Pleasance... It is not. <laughs> so they had to find a creative way to kind of combat that height difference. But yeah, they were in the same room together and they, the way they played off each other was great. I think at one point, Donald Pleasance is like, you know, are you threatening me? And Christopher Lee's like, how very, oh, what does he say? How very astute mm-hmm. of you or something. I mean, basically, yes, I am, but I haven't even told you what the movie's about yet. So We are in London in 1972, and we start off in a tube station, and if you are not familiar, that's a subway uh, to Americans, and they're in the London Underground at a particular tube station, and the OBE that I was mentioning earlier is kind of hitting on this girl. Well, he thinks she's a hooker, and he keeps asking her how much, and then she kind of pushes him away and runs off, and then... Something happens to him, and our main couple comes along, and they find him kind of lying down. It looks like he's dying, so they try to track down the police, and they want to get him some help, but by the time they get back with help, he's gone.
1: Dun, dun,
0: dun! And then we find out, throughout the course of the film, what is going on, and it turns out that when they were building the tube stations years ago, I want to say it was back in the 20s? Uh, About
1: that, yeah. Or at least this particular section. This particular
0: section. They had a cave-in, and there were several people who, men and women, I think they said eight men and four women, that were trapped, and they just left them. Yeah, which
1: I'm assuming they must have, the government, whatever, must have thought, well, they died, and they just left them down there. Because I'd hate to think that, yeah, this cave-in, oh, that sucks. You know, we got people in there. Ah, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, I We're mean, British. We don't care.
0: <laughs> well, the... <laughs> yeah, I mean, they actually make mention of it in the film. And he's like, uh, you know, it was... A, they're like, they just left it like this. Because they didn't just abandon the people. They abandoned the whole thing. Like, the, the majority of this film takes place in this section of the tube station that has virtually never been used, because while it was being built, there was the collapse, and then they abandoned it. And just moved elsewhere.
1: Another aspect that reminds me of Creek later on.
0: Yeah. And he said, you know, what they they just left it like this, and the response was, well, you know, it was a lot of money. (laughs) So, yeah, they just left it. And it turns out that those people were not dead.
1: At least not all of them. We don't know how many survived the initial... But some did. Some men and women, because it's obvious they've been surviving down there. Yeah, for generations. And it's a very Sawny Mm
0: -hmm. Bean-esque story, which I love. And then we, uh, the reason that we find out about this, or they're not, we we're actually watching it. But the reason that the the police are able to discern a little bit about what's going on, or at least get a suspicion is because they do find a couple of people who've gotten killed and they discover that there's blood that is not theirs. It does not belong to one of the victims. But when the scientist looks at the blood or, you know, tests the blood, He discovers that there is a very low platelet count, which has led to thrombocytopenia, which can occur if you have uh, malnutrition. Um, There are a lot of things that can contribute to it, but the main thing in this situation would be malnutrition, I think. Also, I mean, they've been living underground forever. But he has thrombocytopenia, but that's not all. He also has the plague. Mm -hmm. Because there are... Plague rats who still live, who still down there. live there, <laughs> and 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 as they actually mention it in the film, and they say that you know occasionally a rat will come over on a ship and it'll have the plague, and then the other rats, though, that the resident rats will kill it off, and then whatever. But down here in this little pocket, there's still plague running amok.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So this guy's all messed up, yeah,
1: <laughs> and he looks all messed up, and so is his. Wife slash sister slash mom. We don't know. But they begin with two of them. And he, it's actually pretty sad because, you know, she's dying. He's trying to fix her yeah. and he can't. And it's just, it's part of his rage. And now he is the last one left alive from that collapsed tunnel and all those, you know, people from back in the 20s.
0: Yeah. Or a descendant of the well, last yeah, living descendant, mean, yeah. and if you're if you're down in the tunnels, you can kind of see where they have this whole area that they have sectioned off, and it almost looks like like catacombs. Yeah, the way that he has the the bodies laid out in this one particular section, and you kind of get the feel that those are the family. Yeah, and then you have the. Whole other the bodies. Whole, all actually. the other bodies, which has been, I guess, the food. And they're just everywhere from just laying on the floor to hanging on hooks on the wall. I and mean,
1: it's um, now, I do pretty graphic. One question. These people were trapped down there for 50 years, living their life and all that. But just now they broke out? Because now this guy, the last remaining survivor, he's killing normal people up in the normal functional subway or well, tube station
0: I think they have been because if you look at the bodies, they're in various states of decomposition. Okay. And some of them have clearly been there for a long time. I think that what has drawn attention to, it's kind of like those old stories that you hear various places. You know, like, oh, so many people go down here and they go missing yeah. and nobody ever thinks of them again. Except when you get into those those underground, uh, they actually refer to it, like it's like a rabbit warren down there. Uh, the security guard at the tube station. And they don't go in there. They don't go, they don't go investigating, kind of like Chud, you know, or you've got all of those underground areas that nobody goes into. I mean, they're dark, they're dank, they're rat infested, and they're, you know, you you can get lost down there and there's really no reason to go down there. It's dangerous. So I imagine they've been doing this for a long time. People have just gone missing from this station for a long time and the only reason anyone paid attention now is because it was a prominent guy that went missing yeah so if it hadn't been for that i don't think anyone would have known the difference because when the couple goes to the police the inspector donald pleasance he doesn't believe them now they didn't actually see anybody do anything but he doesn't even believe that anything untoward has gone on has gone on because there's no body there's no anything so he just sort of scoffs at them but yeah Scof, i scoff, scoff, I get the imp- i get the impression isn't that this had you know they they've been doing this for a long time it's just no one took notice because there are a lot of bodies down there yeah and there's like a whole pile uh like it just it's like a cairn built of human bodies like under um, there's just hands sticking out and it, i mean it's pretty gross And it it is very sad. I really do, honestly, feel bad for the man, and he's just known as the man. Even though he's been kidnapping and killing and eating people, I don't think he's evil. I think he's just... That's what he knows. Well, again,
1: it's much like Creep. You know, he does horrible, fucked-up things, but he was also raised into it and left alone and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how... Long, he and his wife, girlfriend, sister, mother, who knows. I think she's just the woman. Yeah, well, yeah. But, you know, they've got to be inbred as hell down there.
0: Well, and she... Unless she had some kind of something else going on, she looked
1: pregnant. Yeah. Oh, she was. She definitely was. So I think, you know, they obviously had a relationship, and it adds to his sorrow when she does die. And his rage and all that. But who knows how long it was just them down there.
0: Yeah. And you gotta wonder, though, if the original people that got trapped, if they weren't dead, why did they stay down there?
1: See, that's my point. It's like, I know cave are tough. And, you know, depending on how much cave's in, it could be a hell of a thing to dig through it to get out. But instead of just going, well, I guess this is our life now, <laughs> <laughs> I would be digging I would be digging, and it shouldn't take years, you know, okay, maybe a year, maybe two years. It shouldn't take 50 years to clear a subway tunnel.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, there's no reason that generations would have to survive down there. But I guess whatever reason, that's what it was. And there is a sweetness about him that kind of makes me sad. And when he meets Patricia, and when I say meet, I mean comes up behind her and grabs her <laughs> and drags her back to his it's little. It's his version of a meat cute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> meat.
1: Yeah. Cute.
0: It's a raw meat cute. <laughs> uh, he drags her down into the depths, and his whole idea is he's kind of falling in love with her. Well, he needs a replacement and for his oh, sister yeah, mom he's, who just died. He's his sister mom. He's sad and lonely yeah. and he sees her and she's a pretty girl and so he sort of develops an affection for her and he keeps trying to tell her like you know i'm not gonna hurt you i'm not gonna hurt you but what you know the only thing he ever says is mind the doors because that's apparently the only phrase he knows which incidentally <laughs> i never could figure out what the hell he was saying until just now <laughs> But, yeah, all he ever says and he repeats is, mind the doors, mind the doors. And apparently there's like a joke going around that because of this movie, now they say mind the gap. Yeah. and uh, Which I think is funny. Now, no one, I don't think anyone has officially ever said that it's because of this movie. But coincidentally, after this movie came out, they no longer said mind the doors. They started saying mind the gap. So, I think that's funny. Uh, You know, he kidnaps her. He wants to try to make her his new woman, and she's not having any of that. And then, you know, eventually her American boyfriend comes along, and so do the police. And then, you know, they discover a little bit more about what's going on around there. But, uh, I mean, like I said, like you read the breakdown of the movie, and it kind of just sounds like it could be... I don't know, uh, Hills Have Eyes or, uh, you know, something cheap. And that doesn't mean it's not good, but just something that wouldn't really look all that amazing. And this movie was cheap. It cost, I want to say, 83,000 pounds or 73,000, whatever. It was roughly the equivalent of 150,000 American dollars at the time, which is really nothing when you're talking about making a movie. Not
1: even in 72 was it all that much.
0: But when you look at this film, the cinematography that was done by Alex Thompson
1: is stunning. Well, come on. You've got to be a major screw-up if you can't make a movie set in the subway or tube look good. That is nothing but light and shadow and dripping water. And there is so much... You can do so much with that. Yeah, they oh, do that by
0: the way, he had already won an Oscar at that point. Nice. So they had... This had a really decent pedigree, yeah. you know, for something that sounds like it would be a throwaway gore film. It's really not. Although and it does have some good gore. It, it does. Yeah, you know, some in it. very disturbing scenes. Uh, I actually couldn't finish my dinner while we were watching <laughs> it, because there are some really d- gross moments, but... My favorite part
1: is, I think, the shovel in the head.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a nice one. Yeah. That's really nice. And it has my favorite color blood.
1: Mm -hmm. The melted crayon look.
0: But the use of light and shed. There are some really stunning shots. And I even said, when we were watching this, I'm like, I guarantee you they were so proud of that shot. Mm -hmm. Because it's just, it's, a lot of them are just really beautiful. The composition is incredible. And... And there is a tracking shot in this film that is seven minutes long. Yep. And that was choreographed in one day and shot the next day. Mm -hmm. And that's just amazing. And the whole time, uh, Alan Ladd Jr. was like, what if it doesn't work? What if it doesn't work? And Gary Sherman's like, I really want to get this shot. And they did it, and
1: it was beautiful. So once again, more proof that Gary Sherman is a badass. I mean, sadly, he's... Kind of, not really quit making movies, but he started making movies that just didn't have the same impact as his early work. I think the guy's still alive now. He's probably Mm -hmm. old as hell, but, and I'm sure he's not working anymore, but he was a surprisingly decent director. Actually,
0: I want to say the last thing I saw that he did
1: was 2018. Really? Nice. Well, yeah, that was a TV special short, whatever that means. Oh, okay. He did a documentary before that, and then uh episode on TV, another TV episode, another TV episode, uh, six more episodes. So, yeah, he started doing a lot of work on TVs and all that. But, yeah, I for a while there, he was doing some really incredible stuff.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, like we said, those first three right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. I mean, just nothing wrong with any of those. And they're varied. Like, mm-hmm. he is—he has a lot of range.
1: And, you know, I like that. Absolutely.
0: So, yeah, if you have never seen this film, it is a personal favorite of mine. I absolutely love it. Uh, Blue Underground put out a gorgeous Blu-ray yep. of it in 2017. And uh, that's what we have. And its it's just incredible. I've never seen it look that good
1: it really shows off all the work they the cinematography and all that it it just really looks good yeah
0: and there's a there's a little bit of politics in this film too it's not in your face there's nothing that is like dead in your face but I think if you watch it you kind of get what they're at least where Gary Sherman was sitting at the yeah. time like how he felt about things they also do because there is the American character there are are a couple of comments that are made, you know, with England versus the US. Just off-handed little things, but it kind of gives you an idea of where his mindset was. Also, it was 1972, it was a very political time.
1: So yeah, but it should be said this was politics back in the seventies. That's nothing like the politics today. Well, right.
0: Yeah, I cannot recommend this anymore. And when Brian suggested that we do X is a free space. I immediately thought of two films that I narrowed it down to, like right off the bat. And then I was like, well, let me watch this and see if, you know, how badly I want to talk about it. And then I watched and I was like, oh, I really badly want to talk about this movie because I just, I love the way it looks. I love the cast. I think the screenplay is really good. And the score, yeah, I really enjoy the score. So the whole thing. Uh, plus, nineteen early 1970s London is just, it's a cool place. Like, I, I like movies that are set, just like I said on a previous episode, how I like late 70s, early 80s movies that are set in L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. I really like movies set in London in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, there's just something about the vibe there that I can dig. Anyway, yeah, if you've never seen it, it is on the only streaming Platform I found it on is Plex, but I, you know, if you are a collector, I highly recommend it's the, well Blue, worth the, the Blue, Blue Underground yeah. Blu ray. It is gorgeous. All right. Anything else you want to say about Deathline?
1: No, I think we pretty much covered it. Just a good, solid flick. It's uh, horrific. It's funny. It looks amazing. I dig it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, if you like that, I don't know if you like movies like Anthropophagus. I, I think you can kind of put those. I think this is a better film, but yeah, he does remind me a lot of George Eastman. The, well, yeah, the guy who he plays looks the man. exactly
1: like him, at oh, least in full makeup and all that stuff, I and mean, maybe back then without the wild hair and crazy beard and all that stuff and all the lesions. Uh, oh,
0: he, those are so nasty. I know.
1: He wouldn't look so, you know, he might have looked totally different.
0: Well, I guess we will end that here and we can talk about what your choice is. So what is your choice?
1: Okay, Um, keeping with my theme of this season, it is another cosmic horror, Lovecraftian horror, whatever. This one is more specifically based on Lovecraft as it's called Pickman's Muse from 2010. Now, if you know Lovecraft, you know he has a story, somewhat famous story, called Pickman's Model. And you might be going, oh, somebody made that into a movie. Well, no. (laughs) This movie is actually, there's a little bit of Pickman's Model in here. The character's named Pickman. He is a painter, and he does paint some very disturbing paintings. That's all from the Pickman's Model story. But it's mostly based on one of Lovecraft's stories called... Haunter of the Dark. And it's one of his later stories that he wrote in his life just before he died. And it's totally different. I can only assume they did this name thing kind of as a way to maybe fool Lovecraft fans. Because this was made in 2010. It's a low-budget effort. Uh, It's a labor of love. It looks good. It's acted well. But, again, before... Cosmic Horror kind of started getting a a whole new life. These movies really were made for the fans of Lovecraft already. And I can only assume they chose this title kind of as a misdirect.
0: Well, you know, I've noticed that a lot with H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Because so many people know the stories that if you put a misleading title... Then you might go into it thinking it one thing, and then be surprised when it turns to be something else.
0: Not well, like the resurrected is, yeah. Tr- the
1: curious case of
0: not Charles curious, Dexter that's Ward, Benjamin Button. The, <laughs> is it just the case? Strange, Strange case. case of Doctor. Ch- uh, shit. Strange case of Charles Dexter Ward. Yes. Um. There was the Corman movie that was. Well, that was just. Oh, it was named after. Oh no,
1: a Poe. It was named after a oh, no, Poe po. po poem called "The Haunted Palace," but, but it, was it actually was based off Charles Dexter. Charles Dexter Ward.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but in, yeah, in other in other adaptations, I mean, we've seen that a lot. They'll yes. they'll take a known Lovecraft story title, play with the words a little bit, but really, the movie itself will be not about that.
1: Exactly. As for this, we begin with a guy named Pickman, and he is an artist. He's a painter. And he's gotten somewhat famous for painting lighthouses and landscapes and nice, friendly paintings that he can sell to old ladies and make a buck. But he's quickly becoming sick of that, and he's just running out of oomph to, you know, any sort of need or desire to paint that way.
0: He needs a muse.
1: He needs a muse. And quite by chance, he gets one. He's not looking for it, but somehow he is drawn to a nearby church. And just by looking at that church, he's like, huh, wow. And then he thinks about it, and then he, he starts painting stuff. And we never get to see his paintings, and that's kind of a bone with me, because I do want to see them. But it's the old adage of your mind will make something far more strange and bizarre and hideous than we could ever do on screen.
0: Well, and then you just have to go off the other actors' yes.
1: reactions because to other him, people are... see his paintings and they lose their goddamn minds.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's insane. It's like that. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. And I'm I think, Jesus Christ, what could he have painted that was that bad? His landlady,
1: who likes him, who wants to introduce him to her—I don't feel if it's his niece, niece, niece. yeah. And she takes one look at his latest painting, and she's like, What the hell is that? You're evil! What have you brought into my house? Yeah, she Get goes, out!
0: She goes <laughs> from liking the guy to calling the police on him and wanting
1: to evict yeah. him. Yeah. So, again, whatever they painted, if they showed it to you, it wouldn't match that reaction. So, it's good on him that they didn't show it to you. But I'm still kind of, I want to see what, what he did, because I like weird Macabre, strange art.
0: Well, and the niece uh, is actually talking at one point to the doctor, and she's just like, "Oh," and she just keeps saying the things, those then, things he painted. But she also says those horrible, horrible places.
1: Well, she mentions the alien landscapes, and she mentions how the angles are all wrong. And if you ever read Lovecraft, and that is a you know a phrase you'll be familiar with. So just. The setting, just the landscape is so messed up that it, you know, it hurts your brain. You lose sanity just from looking at that, not including the strange hideous creatures he puts into the paintings. So yeah, he starts painting these messed up pictures and he just so happens to have a therapist because he has some depression problems and all that stuff too, as many artists do. And his therapist is like, wow. That looks just like a painting from one of my patients named Goody. And he is somewhat infamous, this Goody character, because he killed a bunch of people. He cut their eyes out. Supposedly they begged him to do it. And he went a little bit nuts, and he's now living in a sanitarium. And our buddy Pickman is like, No, this is my painting. I did this. And the psychologist is like, no, it can't be. In fact, later, he finds a sketch that Pickman did of this church. And it is a perfect reproduction, line for line, of a sketch that this Goody character has done. So yeah, there's something going on. It's not necessarily a possession or a haunting, because this Goody guy is still alive. But what is causing them to paint so similar? And such horrid things. And then of course our buddy Pikmin starts getting obsessed about what he's doing. He starts hearing voices and he starts looking into the matter. At the same time the psychologist, he his curiosity is piqued and he wants to find out what the hell's going on. There's <laughs> a good scene where he goes to this long abandoned church and it's all locked up and all that but he sees that Outside it, somebody had crucified an octopus. And uh, you find out the locals did that, kind of as a warding symbol to keep... So there's lots of breadcrumbs, and I'm a big sucker for that. There's lots of little nods and winks to Lovecraft and his mythos.
0: I like when he's talking to the little girls yeah. that are jump roping. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, nobody, nobody goes in there, nobody messes with that place... And he's like, well, what do you mean? And she's like, well, didn't you notice the windows? Yeah. When And these are little girls, which I think is very, it, I like it. I like that they notice this kind of thing. But the, one of the little girls says, when is the last time you saw an abandoned building that had not even one broken window? Mm-hmm. And, you, and then the other little girl goes, and you know how boys are. <laughs> <laughs> so even the bad boys in the neighborhood won't mess with this place.
1: Because there's a history to this place. It's called the Church of Starry Wisdom, which is an awesome name. And it was shut down some years ago because, yes, cult-like activities was happening here. And that was even before the time of Goody. So this place has been tainted or cursed or touched by something outside. And it's been lingering here, and it's been influencing others. Lovecraft was big on artists being influenced by outside forces. I mean, spoiler, I guess, if you've never read the story Call of Cthulhu, that is the titular call. The idea that Cthulhu has so much vast psychic power that even though he's quote dead but dreaming his dreams can reach other people. And the people they reach first are the artists, the creative types, the people who are free thinkers and open-minded. So they are the ones who first begin to come under the spell of Cthulhu and all that. And that's pretty much the same here. That's why Pikmin and before him Goody both started getting influenced by whatever remains in this church.
0: Now, you did say that the character of Pikmin was based on someone
1: Richard Pickman, Richard Upton Pickman. Lovecraft Stories, Pickman's model. That's his big ghoul story. And essentially, the thrust of that story is the Pickman in the story, he's again an artist, and he's been drawing these awesomely horrific and grotesque pictures of these underground subterranean creatures. They, he actually has a scene, not a scene, a picture of the ghouls attacking a subway station and just various other things. But the big thing at the end, the big twist is his paintings look so good and they're so horrific because he paints them from life. Those hideous, horrible creatures he has actually been entreating with and he's been working with them to paint them. That's why this movie, Pickman's Muse, you think it might be that, but no, it goes off in a totally different way. Other direction. I, w- I was talking
0: about someone else.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, oh, you mean the character from The Hunter of the Dark? Yes. Okay. Interesting little uh, trivia bit. That character's name from the story is Robert Olmstead, I believe. I know it's Robert. I'm pretty sure there's a Robert Olmstead. I can't remember if that was from a different Lovecraft story or this one, but I'm pretty sure it's this one. And the reason he's called Robert is because he's actually based off Robert Block. Who's Robert Block? Well, you should know who Robert Block is. I know. Okay. But if you don't, he is a famous and prolific and awesome writer. Uh, Specifically horror writer, but he dabbled in, you know, thrillers and mysteries and all that stuff, too. And you should definitely know him from Psycho. He's the guy who wrote the book Psycho before Alfred Hitchcock ever made the movie. Yes, when Block was a very young man... Yes, when Block was a very young man, him and Lovecraft were pen pals. And that's freaking cool. And once again, to show you... Now, Lovecraft undeniably had his shortcomings. Yeah, I'll say. But in other areas... He was a hell of a dude, and one of them was writing and inspiring other writers and working with young other writers, specifically younger, less experienced writers, and mentoring them and bringing them forward and stuff like that. It's the idea of... There's his famous Lovecraft circle, of which, you know, like Robert E. Howard, the guy who gave us Conan was a member and all these other famous authors who liked what Lovecraft was doing and wanted to write their own stories in the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft was all for it. He was like, "Yeah, go ahead." He was never controlling of his creation. He uh, allowed other people to play with his ideas, and then he would play with what they did, and then they would do something else, and, I mean, it was like a big game to these guys. And a lot of great stories were done this way. Robert Block, like many authors, started off writing his own version of Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos stories. And so he sent one to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft said, oh, pretty good, and he gave him some ideas and pointers. And because of this relationship, he actually made this character based on block, and he put them in their story, which I thought is awesome. It just goes to show you in that avenue, at the very least, Lovecraft was very, very giving. And I've dealt with a lot of authors. Well, not a lot. I've dealt with some authors who began their career, like so many others, writing Lovecraft stories, but yet they are very, very litigious and protective of their own work. And that's fine. Every creator should be, but even when their own work is directly inspired from Lovecraft, who was like very free and giving with all his stuff.
0: Yeah, it was very uh, the very definition of open source. Yes,
1: and it's like just
0: a cool thing to think of. Yeah,
1: I mean, he created this whole world of you know these alien gods with unpronounceable names and black magic and you know doom and. Everything. Cosmic horror. He didn't create cosmic horror, but he definitely championed it and pushed it so far forward. He is the big god, I guess, of that subgenre. And I see some authors who wouldn't have a career if they didn't start off by aping his work suddenly get so protective of their stories in that genre. It's like, It's going against the very essence of Lovecraft's idea of, hey, let's all have a good time and have fun.
0: Well, I mean, maybe... But that is neither here nor there. Maybe that's why he
1: never was rich, you know, or... Well, I mean, all his author friends from this time, like, again, Robert E. Howard, I mean, he gave us Conan. Conan is huge! And he did a bunch of other stuff, too. He wasn't rich. I mean, it's the old, you know, cliche of, you're not... As an artist, be it a writer or painter or whatever, you're never going to be rich until you're dead. And even after Lovecraft died, that's why us Lovecraftians were so protective of this stuff. Because for a long time, it was very much a cult. It was very much, you know, people in the know of horror knew who Lovecraft was and liked him and loved him, I should say. But the vast majority of people out there, hell, even today, they have no idea who he is.
0: I can't tell you how many times people ask me what you do. (laughs) Like, they'll meet me and they're like, oh, what does your husband do? And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) I'll try. I'll start. I was like, well, he's a Lovecraftian. And they're like, what? (laughs) And I'm like, you know, do you know H.P. Lovecraft? And they're like, "Mm -hmm." and I'm like, he's an author and an editor. And I'll just leave it at that because they have no idea
1: what I'm talking about. That's what I say, too. I don't, I usually, when I meet people for the first time, I don't tell them. I tell them what I do is, like, oh, I write, and I edit, and, you know, and I... Well,
0: know. I try to, I use it to feel people out. Yeah. You know, because if I meet someone, and they have absolutely no idea who that is, or they've never heard the name even, chances are good that we're not going to have a whole lot in common. Because yeah. even if you are not a Lovecraftian, <laughs> even if you are not... Uh, you know, even versed in his original stories, chances are you've heard the name if you're a horror fan. I would hope so. And so, I'm like, eh, okay, <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking. And I'll go and I'll say, you know, I'm like, okay, well, he, uh, it's like, he writes horror and edits horror anthologies, and and he'll just go, oh, because no one's ever impressed by yeah. horror, which. Then i just turn my nose up at them and walk away, because
1: fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Normie. (laughs) But yeah, for years, Lovecraft is very underground, and, you know, a few people kept him alive. Like, Stephen King began writing his own Lovecraftian tales after reading some of Lovecraft's stories he found in his grandfather's attic. And, you know, oh, Robert Block started... Brian Lumley began that way Ramsey Campbell began that way Uh, John Carpenter was a huge Lovecraft fan and on and on it goes nowadays he's getting a little more uh, respect that he should get and he's getting called on a lot of his racist bullshit too which I cannot abide and I will never make excuses for but when it comes to his creative world his idea of what is horror I've said before I'll say now, and I will say many times in the future. He is the most influential voice in horror.
0: Yeah, even Period. if we don't even know it. Yes, even if the artists themselves may not realize it. Oftentimes, they are influenced by his work, and it because it's just there. It's just it's by osmosis. Yes. It's in the zeitgeist. It just exists, and you in daily life are exposed to so many things that he's responsible for and you know, whether it be directly or indirectly, and you don't even realize it necessarily until you really stop and start looking around. But if you've been a Stephen King fan your entire life, then there it is right there. Yeah. And, he and is, he's he's still... never denied it. No. You know?
1: And yeah, to his credit, he's never denied it. And also, to his credit, he's still doing Lovecraftian works now. I think his late, one of his novels for about five or, hell, ten years ago now, Revival, is very Lovecraftian. Uh, Peter Straub, who gave us Ghost Story, he did Mr. X, which was very Lovecraftian. And so on and so on it goes. I mean, just so many people were inspired by his view of the world and not necessarily his politics or anything like that, just how mankind fits into the cosmos and what is truly terrifying.
0: Do you, speaking of Mr. X, I don't know if we discussed it when we talked about the movie, but would you consider X, the man with X-ray eyes? Slightly. Because, and I wouldn't even say throughout the entire film, because the, the majority of the film is, is him just... Seeing things that he shouldn't be seeing, or but the very end of that film, the very, very end where he sees so far into the cosmos uh-huh. that he that it drives him insane. That right there, I
1: think, is extremely well. That's like the ultimate theme of Lovecraft is sometimes knowledge burns, ignorance is bliss. He has a famous quote that you know, mankind lives. On an island of ignorance and was man not, lives in a world and it was not meant for us to travel far but one day something's gonna happen where we're gonna see the truth realize what's really going on and it's gonna knock us back into you know another dark age and that's a theme that runs through pretty much all his stories looking into stuff you keep looking you keep looking you keep looking and then you know too much but by that time you're fucked you're either insane or dead or soon to be insane or soon to be dead or you're off in another dimension somewhere getting eaten or whatever the real reality is just too much for us and that's where the whole idea of you know oh lovecraft's protagonists are always going insane and why just you know a guy with squid tentacles for a face it's not that you know It's just a big green monster guy. It's what he represents. This is the truth. You were happy and content with what you thought was reality, but what you thought was real ain't. There's this whole other big thing out there. You can't understand it and it's hostile towards you. Not necessarily evil, but just you're not meant to know this stuff. You're not meant to deal with this stuff. And if you do, it's going to fuck you up. I was
0: joking when I said this earlier, but it really does fit. You know, man lives in a a sunlit world, which he believes to be reality. But. But. Yeah. There is, unseen by Mm -hmm. most, an underworld. A dark
1: side. A place that's just as real. But not as brightly lit. Yes. I mean, that's perfect. That's pretty much what this movie is about as well. It's one person... Well, actually two. It's both Pikmin, the artist, and his psychologist. They both come to discover what reality is. And they're not happy with that discovery. Pikmin succumbs to it. The voices he hears start making demands on him. And when he naturally resists, because what they're asking or telling him to do isn't all that nice, they're like, well... We will take our sight back. We gave you a gift. And their gift is all these otherworldly stole from us. visions and all that. But they're like, if you're not willing to pay for it, you stole from us. And well, boom, now you don't have them. For Pikmin, that is the ultimate loss. He was so involved in this new world. He's so infatuated by it and exploring it and painting it that he'll do what he has to do to get that back. It's a really good movie. It does take two different Lovecraft stories and kind of smashes them together, so both of them are changed in the process, but I don't think the changes are bad. I think the stories are strong enough to last and be read and enjoyed on their own, but I think this movie is also very good. I think I was talking about this in the last episode or something. Yeah, it was the last episode, because it was Whisperer in Darkness, where it takes... What Lovecraft wrote as a starting point, but then it goes even beyond that. and They add their own take on it. And as an editor who does lots and lots of Lovecraftian anthologies, that's what I love. I always tell my authors, don't try to write like Lovecraft. You will fail. Only Lovecraft can write like Lovecraft. Take his ideas, take his sandbox... And tell me your story. I want to hear it in your voice. That's what this movie does, so yeah, I'm all about it. But I've seen this movie a few times. This was a first-time watch for you, I believe. Yes. What did you think of it?
0: I really liked it. I think it took a little bit to get going. It does. But, and when I say a little bit, I mean a little bit. Yeah. Like maybe 10, 15 minutes. And then... I was sucked into it because I, I don't know, I'm drawn to, and maybe it's because there are a lot of stories like this where it's about an artist, whether it be, you know, a, a painter or a sculptor or a writer or even an actor.
1: How everything Stephen King ever wrote um, is about ex- ex- a writer. Exactly.
0: <laughs> there are, there are a lot of stories, but it's because there is something special about the mind of an artist. Yes. You know, and so, and the creative mind. And, I really like those journeys. I like those stories. So I thought this was very interesting. And it's always interesting to me to see where people get their muse, where, you know, where people's inspiration comes from. And this particular guy's inspiration comes from a very dark place and he doesn't even realize it when he paints that one particular painting that makes everybody lose their shit, Mm uh, he actually wakes up while he's painting. Like he, he comes like, it's like he's been in a trance and he's like, his response is, Hey, I didn't, I didn't paint that. Kind of like devil's candy. Very much. Like, and that's honestly, that's one reason that I really love that movie because it does look at the artist and the artist's inspiration. And also it, delves even deeper into that with the artist portion of that film. That's really, I guess, about two different kinds of things. You've got the one guy, the guitar guy on the one side, who plays metal to block out the the sound of Satan, and then you have the Ethan Embry character, who is an artist who gets this weird dark inspiration, and he doesn't know where it comes from. He has no idea. It just shows up. And he loses time while he's painting, because he's not... There, he's not doing it like he's physically doing it, but well, he doesn't even know what he's doing, and that that's all what happens here to
1: the uh, creative process. I mean, I am not a big name author by any stretch of your imagination, but even my, when I talk to people and tell them what I do and you know my stories or whatever, uh, maybe they're they've read some of my stuff and they like it, or maybe it's just somebody in general. I almost always get you know the question, "Where do you come up with your ideas?" or and. It, like, Stephen King has railed about that for years, because you don't know. It just happens. You have an idea, and you write it. Or if you're a, an artist, a painter, you paint it. Or if you're a musician, you make a song about it. But, I mean, not everything could be trained. Well, you know, it was about, I saw a news story, and, you know, sometimes... Wes Craven was really big about that. Like, well, he I would gonna, read something, and it would inspire him. I was going to say, sometimes that happens, and that's happened to me. But just a lot of times, you just get something in your head and you kick it around for a while, and then you put it on paper.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, when I made Secret Chopper, I was literally driving behind a car that had those family stickers yeah. on the back of it, <laughs> and uh, I was just like, "That could be really sinister in the wrong hands," you know. And then that's where that came from. Closure, the other short that is that was literally from a dream. Well, I yeah. and that happens a lot. Like I've a lot done that of too, a lot yeah. of artists say that, it, but it was. I woke up in the middle of the night, and that
1: exact
0: story was pulled directly from a dream. That's and only. I have happened. no idea what
1: that's about. That's but. only happened with me twice. I have two stories I wrote, both based on messed up dreams. Everything else has been you know a conscious effort. I think about something and what about this? What about that? Okay, here we go. But those two were dreams I've had, and I woke up, and they were so weird and messed up, and I was like, okay, I gotta write about this.
0: (laughs) That's why I'm so sporadic with my creative efforts. Uh, Whether it's writing a story, or making a piece of art, or any, like, even something like an idea for a podcast, or, for instance, when I'm putting together, I have a lot of fun with music on like, on the Patreon shows, you know, when Mm -hmm. I put together the, like, the intros for the different specials or whatever. I have a great deal of fun with that. But I have to be inspired. I have to be in the mood. It's not something I can do on a daily basis, or that I would even want to do on a daily basis, because if I don't have, like, a burning need to do something, then I don't want to do it at all.
1: As somebody who wishes to be a much more famous writer than he actually is. There's been times where you just have to sit down and do it.
0: Well, Um, and that's what Stephen King does. Yeah. Every fucking day.
1: But there is such, you know, writer's block is a real thing, and it's a motherfucker. And be it writer's block, artist block, musician block, whatever. Sometimes you just hit a brick wall. You don't know why. You don't know when it's gonna go away. And... It can be the most aggravating thing in the world to keep banging your head against this thing because you know you have to do something or even you might know you want to do something but just nothing is happening. You sit down and nothing. That's like the worst thing ever to any sort of writer, artist, musician, whatever, poet.
0: I consider myself much more proficient at nonfiction. You know, I'm really good at research and at putting things together and technical writing. My boss at the lab, he he was like a big, huge, big name scientist. And he was always trying to get me to write scientific papers. And he was like, you know, you're really good at technical writing. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really all that exciting, you know. But that's where my strong point is. When it comes to something creative, again, it has to hit me. I can't just go, I'm going to write a story today. Like it, it just doesn't work that way. You know, and that's why I don't do that as a job <laughs> because it just doesn't work that way for me. I can't do it if I'm if it's not something I really really want to do or I have an idea that just hit me and I'm like I got to get this down. I have to do this. Then it doesn't work.
1: Oh, I hear you. <laughs>
0: But you know, I mean, what Stephen King does is he just he sits down, even if he sent, even if he spends an entire day writing gobbledygook <laughs> that makes no sense at all, just stream of consciousness. He does it yeah. just to keep just to keep it flowing, you know. Even if it, even if he just throws it on the slush pile, he just keeps it flowing. So, I mean, I guess that works. And oh, who uh, Lansdale does the same thing. Yep. I guess there's something to it.
1: Yeah, there is. And I gotta get better at that. Sometimes I go great guns, and other times I hit that damn wall, and it just laughs at me. Nope. (laughs) Anyways, enough about that. The movie. Do you have anything else to say about it?
0: No, I do think it's a very good movie. And I do recommend it. Unfortunately, I when I tried to look it up on Just Watch, it doesn't even come up as no, an option. Like, not only is... is it not available anywhere, it doesn't even show
1: up on the app. Like I said, this is a low-budget labor of love. The people who made it, you know, made it for us Lovecraftian fans. It, was a, it made the circuit around the Lovecraft Film Festival and stuff like that. It is available on DVD. That's how I have it. But... Sadly, if you want to watch it, and I do recommend you watch it if you can, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. You might have to get the DVD. I don't even know if it's on Amazon. I got it from the director himself years ago. But uh, I really like the movie, and I do recommend it. it is just, it's just just—it's a good look at the creative process and how you can become a slave to it. And then you take that already messed up obsession and then you add the whole cosmic element to it and I just I think it works very well
0: yeah I totally agree and it you know there are trailers available on YouTube I was kind of hoping the movie itself would be on there because sometimes that happens yeah, with low budget movies I already movies. looked <laughs> it's not but there are trailers there so if you want to just see if maybe you think it's worth digging deeper for then check out a trailer who and- knows maybe one day it'll
1: come to 2 because 2B Tubi- they seem to run everything. I'm really impressed with 2P.
0: Yeah, they get their hands on some really yeah. obscure they stuff. They have a lot of crap.
1: A lot of crap. But they have a few good gems, too. Yeah. But anyways, that is Pikmin's Muse from uh, 2010. It's uh, relatively short. It's only an hour and 17 minutes. So it's a nice, brisk, breezy watch. I think it's done very well. I think the ending is a little bit of a step back. They kind of just end it. They don't know what to do with it. Because at the end of the Lovecraft story, something very epic and horrible happens. Uh, With this story, this movie I should say, they obviously had no budget to do that. So they really tried to get away from it.
0: It does have very, though, bleak, dark
1: Well, yeah, it's a a Lovecraft story. Horrific ending. There's not too many happy Lovecraft story endings. (laughs) It's one of the reasons I like them. So, yeah, that was my pick. I wanted to cover this when we did the peas, but then I wanted to also cover Pandorum. And that's much more accessible. Yes. It's a bigger, it's, it's an actual, you know, quote, real movie that also hasn't gotten a lot of love or a lot of looks at. So I decided to go with that. But since we were picking anything we wanted to do for X, I decided to go back to this one and give it some much-needed love. So I do think it is a very solid, good movie. Well, i did. It, yeah, well, thank you. But sadly, it is. And that's... It bums me out that there are so many movies like this. Good, solid efforts. But because of their budgets and connections or whatever, they've just been lost in time. Yeah. Just how many movies out there are like this? You know, a very good, enjoyable movie, but you can't find it anywhere.
0: Well, what was that? You remember um, The Curtain or what was it called? The one about the shower curtain.
1: Yeah. uh, We covered it here. Was it called Portal? Or was it called Curtain?
0: I think it was called The Curtain.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: But... Anyway, yeah, that's a... Yes. I mean, who's ever the hell heard of that movie, you know? And we just kind of stumbled across it. And that was a good thing. Yes. You know, but it's that's not my anybody point. ever that was about.
1: That was the original idea of the whole ABCs of hidden horror thing. Just to find these movies that are hidden. That have been lost. And no fault of their own. Just whenever I can highlight a movie this obscure, it makes me happy. Yep. Yeah. I just wish you people, the listeners, can find it and watch it somehow sadly i have nothing no hints to give you on how to do that other than picking up the dvd somewhere
0: well and if anybody does or if anybody out there has already seen it let us know what you think
1: yeah because when i posted about watching this one i was surprised about how many people were like yeah i've seen that oh yeah it's a good movie and i was like really because nobody's seen this movie
0: Okay, well, I guess that will wrap up this section of the show. We're going to be right back with Bumps in the Night. Awesome. See you in a bit. Bumps in the
1: Night.
0: Okay, we are back, and it's time for some bumps in the night. Now, while we were racking our brains trying to decide what we wanted to do, we had a couple of different ideas floating around. We just happened to be watching a tech news show. It's a YouTube channel that we watch, and that's not all they do, but one day a week they do tech news. And came across a story that is almost too weird to believe But yet, it's very, very true. And then I was like, well, that's a creepy story. I'd like to talk about that. And then, Brian, you came up with a couple things.
1: Yeah, I am a big fan of weird history. Some of the stuff that actually went on in ye olden days is weirder and stranger than anything you've seen in a movie or read in a book or anything like that. So I have three tales of various sizes of experiments that was done with various degrees of success. And there's some oddball ones. What I think is most odd is all three of these have a Russian connection. Yeah, the Russians were kind of weird back in the old days.
0: <laughs> well, you know, they did that sleep experiment.
1: Well, yeah, that's that's my favorite one. <laughs> but uh, these are all real. They happened. So, you know, you can look them up, Google it, whatever. If you don't believe me, you can find more. But I've always been interested in weird stuff like this, so I figured out share some. So, in this... wait,
0: yours are on Smithsonian? Because my story is on Smithsonian.
1: This one is. The other oh, okay. two aren't. But I was I mean, going to
0: say, one-stop shopping.
1: You can't beat the Smithsonian. I mean, they're kind of good at what they do. But I would like to call this segment Weird Science. <laughs> You should get the Oingo Boingo That's song right. and play it in here. I, I, I might do that. You, okay.
0: Is there a limit to how much Oingo Boingo you're allowed to use? Because There is no
1: limit on Oingo Boingo. Okay. Thank That's you very much.
0: That's what I like to hear. Uh, Why don't we start off with the most recent one, which is the one that started the ball rolling. Yeah. So this is a real story. It just happened a couple of days ago. And like I said, the particular article that I found was on Smithsonian, but they've covered it in various other places. You can fact check it. You know, if you think I'm lying, then I encourage you to do your research. (laughs) This is supposedly a way for scientists to extend the life of organs that are intended for transplant. And that's the thought process behind it. That's what the research is for. But when I get done with this story, you can decide for yourself where it's really going to go. Because I see it going a very different
1: dark direction. We know where that direction is, but
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it really starts out in in uh, 2019. Back in 2019, uh, some scientists took the heads of several pigs that had been decapitated for food production. These pigs had been decapitated. They didn't eat the head? What about that head cheese? <laughs> These pigs had been decapitated four hours prior. The scientists injected their experimental fluid was into the brain. Was it green glowing? Uh, I believe it was. Okay. And that's actually what I was thinking about when we saw the story the other night. Um, <laughs> but uh, they injected the fluid and got it circulating into their brain. And they got some brain cells to come back to life. Mm. And we're not talking five minutes after death. We're not even talking twenty minutes after death if you want to go the reanimator route mm. is it or is it twelve minutes or six to six to twelve minutes, I think is what the Something
1: d- like that, yeah. But no, four hours. Don't make af- me break a pencil at you.
0: <laughs> four hours after death, they got uh, response from from brain cells. Well, what that did was send these scientists into a tailspin because of what does that mean or specifically what does that mean for the definition of death and what does it mean for the definition of brain death and they just thought it was sort of a moral quagmire so in order to solve that problem for future experiments they began to introduce nerve blockers into the fluid that would prevent the experiment from gaining consciousness and it would prevent the brain activity and that leads us to our most recent experiment which was just a few days ago and in this instance again pigs And I assume they're using pigs because of the relative closeness that pigs have to us biologically as far as, you know, we have pig
1: valves that we can transplant into humans. We actually grow a lot of things inside pigs and use the, like, the stem cells of pigs and all that stuff because we are very close to pigs for whatever the hell (laughs) the reason well we are long pig yeah true
0: (laughs) so uh anyway so they again are using pigs and this time they had the entire carcass and they injected the fluid and they got responses now it took a while i want to say it took six hours sounds about it took a while but these pigs had only been dead for an hour and then I want to say six hours later, they started noticing function, uh, or at least cellular function, uh, function on the cellular level in the heart, in the lungs, in the kidneys. So, like I said, the idea here is that if they can take this experimental fluid and inject it into organs that are meant to be transplanted, it will sustain the shelf life of transplantable organs because, as it is, and this is really kind of, ins- of an insane number. But as it is, there are currently around 106,000 people on the National Transplant Waiting List. Oh, yeah. And 17 people die every day waiting for a transplant. And a lot of times, the- it's just that by the time an organ would be able to get to someone for transplant, it's no longer viable because they have a very short shelf life.
1: Well, that's why there is... A real black market for organ transplants. It largely comes out of China because God knows they have more people they know what to do with. But yeah, people are killed and their organs are harvested. You know that urban legend about the kidney and the bathtub and all that stuff? No, they just, they grab somebody and they just strip them wholesale and piece them out. That is something that's been going on for years. You know, it's not legal, obviously, and various governments around the world... If they find out about it, they put a stop to it and they don't let it come into the country. Even though it would save lives, they still don't want to reward that kind of practice. But, yeah, that's a thing.
0: So now that they've gotten this response, there was cellular activity in the brains. They just did not regain in the brain cells they just did not regain consciousness so they weren't really brought back to life they didn't dis- they didn't display brain activity but what this does do is challenge the notion that cardiac death can't be reversed yeah so this is what i ask you listeners where do you see this going because i have zombies two words that come <laughs> to mind immediately and that is zombie outbreak okay yeah i this is This is it. I mean, it starts in a lab. I mean, there are good intentions behind what's going on here.
1: These Well, they usually are behind most experiments and ideas, but they don't always stay that way. Exactly. And then they go wrong. Well, especially if the government gets involved government's number one priority always seems to be, what can we use for war? Well, and I mean every government. If you're outside, you know, the U.S. and you're in some peaceful little loving country, and yay, nothing bad happens here. It's not our government. Yes, it is. All governments play with ideas for the new great weapon. And more, more often than not, they fuck it up.
0: Well, what did I say? When we were watching this news story, the first thing I said was... Military is going to get a hold of it and they're going to implement it on the battlefield. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, why wouldn't they? Because I've seen a lot of movies. That's why. You know,
1: it might not go that far. It might not be viable. But believe me, if they had some sort of serum to make zombie soldiers, I could see somebody using it.
0: Well,. I was just about to say it could go down a Return of the Living Dead Part Three path, which is exactly what they're doing in Return of the Living Dead Part Three, but the path I'm referring to is that when Hopefully it's his, better than the movie. His girlfriend gets killed, he sees an opportunity to bring her back to life. Just like at the end of Reanimator. All we need is one sentimental scientist who's in the know to have a heartbreaking loss. Yeah. The next thing you know,
1: zombies everywhere. Or a bunch of animal liberation people break those zombie pigs out and suddenly we have zombie pigs roaming the streets. That would be awesome. (laughs) Hordes of zombie pigs (laughs) squealing and (laughs) and just chasing people down.
0: Anyway, overall I think this is some potentially terrifying stuff going on. But, you know, and I've already decided that somebody should probably write a movie about it and I think it should be me. Well, then why don't you do that? Get on that. <laughs> I think I might do that. Well, that's pretty much it for my story, but I think it's kind of... Uh, it's intriguing, you know? I mean, I have a scientific background. I'm a- I'm automatically interested in things like that. But then the horror side of me peeks its head around the corner, and we mash it together, and it's nightmare fuel. hmm So, Brian, why don't you
1: regale us with what you were able to come up with? Uh, these are three kind of linked things... All stemming from Russia back in the olden days, because God knows they were fucked up, and uh, <laughs> not that they're not still, but uh,
0: yeah. I was gonna say sorry to any of our Russian listeners, but they probably can't. Uh,
1: yeah, not they anymore. Can't hear us
0: anymore? <laughs> or maybe they're bootlegging it. I would love to think that we're bootlegged somewhere. I know
1: that'd be awesome. <laughs> we're like radio. Keep Freer circulating back those tapes. <laughs> Okay, in 1926, this is less than a decade after the Russian Revolution and Russia all went communist, a famed Russian zoologist, Ilya Yovanov, he had an idea. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could combine apes and man? I think we did that a few million years ago, didn't we? No, we separated. (laughs) He wanted to
0: bring us back together. Well, that's what I meant, was back then we were combined.
1: Yeah. yeah. But his idea was, well, it would be just physically more impressive. We can make, imagine half-human, half-ape soldiers or workers or anything. It would just be a massive boost to the human form to have some of their, I mean, if you ever look at apes, they are jacked. And it's not like they work out. They're not pumping iron or anything. They're just naturally jacked. I mean, here's a picture of a chimpanzee just chilling. Look at that arm. Yeah. Bodybuilders have to bust their ass and usually use steroids to get in an arm like that. He's just sitting there in the grass playing, you know, with his dick. And he is just huge. Well, uh, another thing it would give him is reach
0: because well, they have
1: big, long extremely arms. long
0: arms. So they would have reach and power and agility. And they also thought it might keep them
1: docile. I don't know why exactly that. Because apes are known to be docile? They will rip your face off. Yeah, I don't... Maybe because they live in groups or something. I don't know. But that's how he sold it to his big communist buddies. And he also sold it to kind of prove the church was wrong and Darwin was right about evolution. Not that he was, you know... I love evolution, but at that time, a little fact about communism, they don't like religion because it competes with them. They want to be the only power, the only people telling other people what to do. And so, when Russia went communist back in the 20s and 30s, they outlawed and shut down a shit ton of churches. And, you know, they were all hardcore atheists. There's a term out there that a lot of atheists or you know non-believers now often cite saying religion is the opium of the masses that was coined in russia so yeah there were never big fans of religion or anything like that so this was supposed to be also another fuck you to religious establishment proving that we did come from apes and now we can go back to apes if we want so this guy's idea was Planet initially the apes no. Let's take a bunch of women and have, you know, apes, chimpanzees specifically, and orangutans, rape them. Luckily, even the communists were like, eh, no. <laughs> we can't go that far. And But this scientist was like, hey, let's just do it. We don't have to tell them. We got a bunch of prisoners. So let's take some of those female prisoners out and bring in a horny chimp and let's see what happens. And like, no, you just can't do that. Instead, they went to the next best thing, artificial insemination. Yeah, a whole bunch of women were artificially inseminated with ape sperm. Again, chimpanzees and orangutans mostly. The outcome was... nothing. You cannot breed apes and humans. Again, this was 1926. This is They're still understanding how genetics and reproduction and all that stuff... I mean, they knew how reproduction worked. But not that. This was an impossibility. Especially with Darwin coming out and, you know... Look,
0: back in the 20s, they didn't even want to say the word vagina. So, well, yeah. uh, you know, I can, I can believe that they were a little backwards when it comes
1: to reproductive. But especially, this was also a time when Darwin came out and he was, re- you know, really promoting his theory of evolution. And a lot of people, I mean, it's kind of scientific fact now. If you don't believe in evolution, I don't know what to tell you. But the idea was, if we came from apes, we could go back to apes. And you just can't. But I always liked the idea that somebody... Somewhere out there, there were some Russian crazy bastards who wanted a Planet of the Apes-type army. A bunch of apes swinging around in the trees of AK-47s and extolling the virtues of communism.
0: Do we know where the idea for the, the books... Came from?
1: Planet of the Apes? Yeah. No.
0: I wonder if it was inspired by...
1: It could have been. This research. Because there's actually a French connection coming up.
0: Oh, that's a good movie.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. They did that once. Then there was a guy named Sergei Voroninov. And I'm probably butchering that. Sorry if we do have any Russian listeners out there. He was... Once a Russian scientist, then he moved to France, and he was big into organ transplants. This was back in like the 30s, before it ever really was a thing, but he was on the cutting edge of transplanting things. And he once had an idea, and it also pertains to m- apes. are big and scary and just Rrrr. What happens if we transplanted their balls into a human? Why? Instead of just going whole hog with swapping out the testes, he did take thin slices of monkey junk, cut into a man's scrotum, put them into the scrotum, sew them up, and then, over time, the slices of monkey balls would fuse to the human balls. And the idea was, because monkeys are so much more physically impressive than us, they would have... And the theories behind us were numerous. Uh, He thought it might slow down aging. He thought, of course, it would make people stronger. He thought it'd make them more resilient, able to work and toil longer. He thought it would make them more virile, so a bunch of old men whose dicks don't work, throw in some monkey balls, and you're back at it. They used to love playing monkey ball. And this was a thing they actually did for... The time that it was going on, it was actually in vogue in, like, the 20s up to the 30s. There's newspaper reports of rich people, because, of course, this cutting-edge science was only available to the uber-rich. But they would go, and they would seek this guy out, and they would have the treatment... And then they would all come back and go, Oh, it works! I feel better than ever! And I'm stronger! And, you know, oh, my dick is back! And, oh, I'm so young and virile now! And they were like, like I said, newspapers reported about this. Other scientists applauded this. Like, oh, that is so good! Yay! Look at you! And so this was a thing. By the early 1930s, over 500 men had been treated in France with this technique including the doctor's own little brother. And there were thousands more people, other places, other doctors and other countries, started ripping this guy off and taking what he had done and saying, hey, we can do that too. And, I mean, there were, it was all over the place. And then this guy, Voronoff, thought, hey, what if we take monkey ovaries and put them in a woman? And then, what if we take human female ovaries and put them in a monkey? Wouldn't that be awesome? And yeah, nothing ever came from it. As for the monkey ball transplant, like I said, for about a decade, it was kind of a fashionable thing. It was something that a lot of people, you know, swore by. But then scientists really started doing, you know, science, and they realized, yeah, it doesn't do anything. There's no increased testosterone. There's no increased muscle mass. It has nothing to do with halting the aging process. And they pretty much concluded that all the people who were like, yeah, this is great, I feel so much better, is pretty much the placebo effect. They thought it was gonna be some major miraculous thing because the science has told them it would. And unlike today, people back then believed science. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they were wrong. Well, this is <laughs> one area where, yeah, yeah, you probably shouldn't have gone down there. But yeah, that was just. In the 30s, there was a guy in France who would, if you wanted to, and paid him a lot of money, put monkey nuts inside your nuts. That is disturbing. Yeah, I just, I I love that. (laughs) The last one is also Russian in origin, but it's no longer tied to any of the apes. You know of heart transplants? Sure. And, you know, they have cornea transplants. Yeah and you know kidney
0: transplant kidneys,
1: liver, everything you know, everything is transplant Yeah, yeah you know they can do a head transplant kinda this is something that doctors have always tried to do for a long time and it usually doesn't work but here is a story where we did have some limited success and it's kind of sad I don't like this story because, you know, I like animals more than people but, you know, hey, whatever
0: oh, I think I know this story
1: 1954, Vladimir dumikov a Soviet surgeon who, is, who did important work in advancing, again, the whole transplanting of organs and stuff like that. He was like, why can't we transplant heads? And everybody's like, well, because it's a head. <laughs> and he's like, well, I can do it. So he decided to start doing it with dogs. Yeah, this is
0: the one where he made the two-headed dog, right? Yes,
1: he did. Yeah. He did it on a bunch of dogs. Most of his efforts just didn't work. But he did start getting better at it. His most successful transplant lived for 29 days. It was actually the head and like front paws, like the shoulders and paws of a dog, grafted to another. And they wanted to see, you know, they didn't want to connect the nervous system and all that. They just wanted to see if the blood flow would work and it would actually behave like a dog and get, you know, living responses. And it did. Both heads were alert. Both heads were active. Uh, Only one head ate because the other head didn't have any, you know, digestive system or anything. But it was a two-headed dog alive for almost 30 days. Eventually, they stopped doing it. He could not break that barrier And there's no point in doing this thing if it only lasts for, you know, less than a month. But this still is something that even science is still working on today. The transplantation of human heads. In fact, a little while ago, there was, I think in China, a doctor was going to try this with humans. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I went looking for that. Maybe you could, dear listeners, Google, Google that and find what happened there but I don't know if it actually proceeded and if it did, what the results were. This is just some of the strange, mad science that actually happened. You saw a two-headed dog in a movie, you'd go, oh, that's just ridiculous. Eh, with a little bit of work, it might have been successful. Still sad, though. Oh, yeah. But it's also the kind of idea where one of the basis, some people think, for Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, at least one of the influences, was... The idea that at that time a scientist he did an experiment with worms, simple worms, and he did something where he put them in a maze, and once the worm figured out how to go to get his food, they would kill it, chop it up, and then feed it to the other worms.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the other worms would instinctively gain the
1: know, right, how to solve the maze on their first try, and that's just crazy. I don't even know how that works.
0: Well, I mean, earthworms are very different anyway. Well, yeah, they're can, very simple. You can cut them in half, and both, you know, both ends would... Yeah, just fall away and grow back. You know, <laughs> So it's not like you can do that with humans. It's like, you know, like, chop up a... Like, dig up Einstein, chop him up, feed him to somebody, and suddenly everybody understands the theory of relativity.
1: That'd be awesome. Anyways, yeah, I love stories like this. I love where... Reality is weirder than you think it is. And this is all just, you know, science trying to prove something.
0: It's like that story from a few years ago. Uh, There was a German scientist who took three people and fused them together. Yeah. Ass to mouth. Yeah, he he (laughs) made a... I think I saw a documentary about that. Yeah.
1: And then later, somebody in America, because of course Americans love things bigger and better. You know, they made it even bigger. I and then it,
0: I think there was one more try.
1: Yeah. I feel what they called that.
0: Uh, I don't know, but it something like people worm, or...
1: People peed, maybe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, well, that is the dark science that, uh, or weird science, science, <laughs> that, uh, we Plus decided... tubes and pots and pans. <laughs> anyway, hopefully that, uh, either brightened your day or will give you something to keep you up at night.
1: And if you're interested in this, look up the Russian sleep experiment. It's awesome. Also, to be perfectly you know, transparent, it's also fake. That's not a real thing. That's known as a creepypasta. But, of all the creepypastas, it's my favorite by far.
0: Well, and it's also honestly believable.
1: Because... It walks that fine line between the, the main... believable and not. Because
0: when the body does not get sleep, weird shit starts to happen.
1: Well, that part is true. The ultimate ending of, you know, we were close to coming back and stuff like that. You know, that's all fiction. But I love to think about that. The other side of humanity. You know, it's submerged by us being who we are and our conscious brains and all that stuff. We keep it in check. But when you start taking that stuff away, it comes back. So... That's your reading assignment for this week or next week or whatever.
0: Yeah, and if you have any favorite dark science stories or things that you've always thought were cool and creepy, uh, let us know. Yes, please.
1: I'm always up to hearing more.
0: All right, now we're going on to Attack of the Colossal Collection. Attack of the Colossal Collection. Okay, we are here with some collection films to discuss, but we don't have a whole lot because we finally ran into where we left off last time.
1: (laughs) We got to blow the dust off that one, man.
0: Yeah, we um, we haven't been doing a lot of collection watches lately, and the majority of that is my fault because I got hooked on. Well, it's Brian's fault that I got hooked on it, but it's my fault that we powered through it so fast and that is Boardwalk Empire. Well, yeah, and we so re- that took up about a month.
1: <laughs> we recently went through all the Boardwalk Empires and before that, we recently, well not recently, but before that, we did all the Sopranos. That yeah, that was last year.
0: Yeah, and when I get into something like that and I get hooked on it, then I just I wanna watch like four or five episodes a night. Oh, we also had the boys come out and we had to watch all of that. So I mean we've been
1: We've been doing, doing a lot of T
0: V watching. Yeah.
1: And that's because it's a good time to watch TV. Hell, we haven't even started the uh Oh, there were Stranger Things too that we watched. Oh yeah, we did Stranger Things. But I mean, there's yellow jackets I've heard, good things about there's the latest Season of American Horror Stories, the anthology series that's back out. There's so much stuff out there I want to watch. We're always watching movies too, and here is some of the collection up until the last one. We're going to begin in 1993 with Kronos, the first full length theatrical movie of Guillermo del Toro. This one was filmed, I believe, in Spain. I know that you know Guillermo. He's Mexican, but I think he does most of his work, at least his early work, in Spain. When did Mimic come out? That was directly after this. Okay. That was his first big Hollywood film, and then because he really didn't like his uh, experience with that, he went back to Spain and did another independent, a little movie called The Devil's Backbone, which is awesome. But as for this one. I really dig this movie. It's a brand, well, I don't know, brand new, but it is a new take on the vampire genre. It's a brand new take from 30 years ago. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... (laughs) But, you know, I'm kind of sick of the whole vampires could be a metaphor for drug addiction. Yes, I know. I've seen like five movies about that. You can stop making that movie now. Here's one where it really, it just comes out of left field. There's an old guy... And he gets a hold of a golden thing. It's a little round, almost kind of looks egg-shaped. And then by him fiddling around with it, it pops legs out. And something which you would consider could be a stinger-like thing. And in the process, it stabs him. And that's how he becomes a vampire. So it's this total clockwork, steampunk, alchemy type of device... And, you know, I love that old pseudoscience-type stuff. And it's his journey into vampirism, where he's old and feeble and dying. He starts getting younger and stronger, but he also has a grandson who he sees these effects happening. He knows something's going on, and, you know, of course, Grandad loves his grandson. He's saying, oh, don't worry about it, and he's trying to keep him safe from this thing. But he starts getting those urges that all vampires do. And yeah, it's basically a vampire story, but what sets it apart is not only the family element, but this whole strange, messed up device thing that causes his vampirism. I love the idea behind it, and it's easy to see why Guillermo became such such a big name, because even though this is his first movie, I don't think it has any of the... First movie flubs, or just, you know, mistakes, or hell, not even mistakes, but growing pains that a lot of directors, you know, sometimes experience. I don't think it feels like a first movie. No, that's why I had to double check. And before this, he had done some TV and such, like in some shorts, but not a full-fledged movie. This was his first try at that, and I think it's a hell of a try. Because, yeah, if you're going to do something with vampires nowadays, and yeah, this is 30 years ago, but it's still relatively modern, I guess.
0: Well, it was actually very close to Bram Stoker's Dracula. So yes. th- that was hot and heavy at the time, and vampires were big. So that was kind of a refreshing, different take. I kind of wish that it was a little more well-known and it had taken off a little heavier. Like, it, just yeah. no one really talks about it.
1: No. I mean, the people who know about it usually end up liking it. I don't hear too many people bad-mouthing this movie. I've
0: never heard a negative thing about this movie.
1: But, uh, yeah, I mean, it also has uh, Ron Perlman in here, which is cool. I mean, Perlman and Del Toro, they have been friends forever, and it all traces back to this. In addition to Perlman, there's also Federico Lupi. i probably mangled that. But he was a somewhat known actor in Spain. So, yeah, like I was saying, if you're going to do something with vampires, for God's sake, do something new. Don't do the same old, same old, and don't do the drug thing again. This was a fine example of that. Even though it was 30 years ago, I don't know if anybody has topped it in as far as being a unique take on the vampire mythology. There no, might be I mean, something in there, I'm, you know, I'm just not remembering right now, but...
0: Well, I mean, they've done different things, like Afflicted was, I think, that, a, yeah, a that. very good... Te- but even then, it was the same stuff.
1: It's very you know? classical, they put a new angle on it, though. Right, Right, right. You know, you, you they got, told the story in a different way, yeah, but it you was... you got a first-hand account of what's going on. Anyways, yeah, if you've never seen Kronos... I highly recommend it. Of course, it's Del Toro. He is a masterful filmmaker, and his movie just looks amazing. So again, it shows even at his in his beginning, he knew how to use a camera and knew how to make something look damn good. But it's also just it's a good horror movie, you know, regardless of you know who did it and all that. It's so good that both Jamie and I give it a four out of five. We now come to. One of the all time classics of the 90s. This movie, when it came out, it hit hard. And soon everybody in like the whole kind of like goth and, you know, dark scene and all that, they were so affected by this movie. Everybody emulated this movie. Everybody in that scene was dressing like this movie. And I'm talking about uh, The Crow from 1994. This was directed by Alex Poyas, who also gave us the really good and overlooked Dark City. And, of course, it stars the late Brandon Lee. This is the movie he died on, so it had that infamy going for it. And it's based off a comic book by J.O. Barr. And this one, I was a fan of The Crow before the movie ever existed. I was one of the original hipsters who was into the comic book. Maybe because it was, you know, it's based in Detroit, is written by a Detroiter. It might have had a small, local experience before it hit nationwide. But I knew about The Crow for years. And when I heard there was a movie coming out, I was excited to go see it. And then when I heard Brandon Lee died making it, not only was I upset that he died, but I was like, God damn it, there goes the movie. So I was surprised that they brought the movie out. And they actually... I think, did a good job of hiding the fact that Brandon Lee wasn't in the whole movie. If you didn't know, you'd never know. No. You would never know. And they used, like, stunt performers and lookalikes and, you know, lots of light and shadow to hide his face. But also some very early, a little crude, but he got the job done digital effects where they would take Brandon's face and put it on his stuntman's body and stuff like that for a few scenes.
0: Well, and I have to say, like I said, if you didn't know, you'd never know. I I can only imagine that if he had not been the victim of such a tragedy, then then there would have been more dialogue, maybe some yeah. more scene. But it doesn't hurt the film. You don't notice.
1: I know they beefed up the roles of the cop played by Ernie Hudson mm-hmm. and the little girl, I forget her name, but they beefed up their roles and their interactions to make up the you know runtime and the fact that Brandon Lee couldn't be in the whole movie like it was supposed to be. Yeah, this movie was huge. It was everywhere. At Halloween in 94, 95, 96, and so on, you would always see one crow, two crows, a whole murder heh, of crows.
0: <laughs> well, and this has become a regular Halloween time watch for a lot of people because it takes place on Devil's
1: Night. Ooh, which another Michigan tradition. Thank is. you very much. Yeah, it, uh,
0: <laughs> Devil's Night did originate in Detroit in the 60s, I yeah. want to say. And then there are, uh, it's mostly a Midwest thing. Uh, We don't have it in the South.
1: Well, we really don't have it anymore. You never hear about Devil's Night anymore. But for when I was a kid in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah, that was a thing. I mean, that was Detroit burned every year. (laughs) So, I mean, that's the idea. There's some bad people are going around burning stuff up Devil's Night. But there's a deeper, more underground, organized crime element to it. With Cash Money. With Cash Money.
0: No, What's his actual name? (laughs) Top Dollar. Top Dollar, yeah. I always call him Cash Money because I can (laughs) never remember his stupid name.
1: But was it the 60s or was it the 40s? For Devil's Night? Yeah. It might go back to the 40s, but I know for a fact it was the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And even up until the 80s, that's when it started dying down. They would do a thing where they would brandy about the whole name Angel's Night. They would have like a bunch of neighborhood watch people patrolling the streets and with the cops in the fire department on speed dial. And, you know, they eventually, they didn't really knock it down. Every once in a while now you do hear of a building or something going up. But back then it used to be just, you know, (laughs) building after building after building just blazing. As for this movie, Brandon Lee and his girlfriend, they're about to get married, but something happens. She dies, he dies, but he comes back. He is led by the spirit of the Crow, and he wants revenge. It's a pretty straight-up revenge film with a supernatural tinge. It's not really a horror movie, although there's an undead guy in it. But, I mean, it's more in the vein of, like, the westerns, uh, mm-hmm. High Plains Drifter Pale and Pale Rider. Yeah. And he's just hes a great character. He walks the line between insanity... And, you know, being sane, he is very violent. He's merciless to the people who did him wrong. But he's also there to help others. It's a shame that Brandon Lee died in this film. You know, just for the simple f- sake that he died. But also, I think this movie really would have been a big launching point for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, he was already... Uh, he had several action movies
1: He did Rapid well. Fire and he did Big... Not Big Trouble, Little China. Showdown in Little Tokyo. And I like both those movies. I yeah, like them a lot. Yeah. But this movie, it would have took them to a whole nother level. But then again, you don't know how much... Like me, I was dying to see this movie from the start. But yeah, I mean, you've probably seen this movie. If not, you really need to. It's a little slice of awesome. It is so gothic, it hurts. It is so 90s, it hurts. But
0: in all the best ways. But in all the best uh... ways.
1: The soundtrack is pure 90s. Metal rock, new age—it's amazing. uh, Grunge, and And look,
0: I gotta tell you, well, well, when we watched this the last time, I uh, I straight up said that I'm like, this is Pale Rider, yeah, like it 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 is that movie, like it's or in High Plains Drifter, they're pretty much the same movie, but it's this is a western. Oh, yeah. It is definitely a Western, and it's so good. But I actually saw somebody post on Facebook a few weeks ago when I had gone over to check the group page, and somebody, I don't even remember who it was, said, you know, that they had recently watched, not on our group page, uh, (laughs) somewhere else, but they had recently watched The Crow again, and it was straight trash. Those are their words. You know, I would never use those words. Yeah, because I would stab somebody in the face for saying that shit. (laughs) I'm like, how? How can you think that? I don't get that. I think it holds up amazingly well. Like, the the effects look fantastic. And, yeah, it's dated by the music more than anything. But also, you know, even some of the look. But Yeah. But... Not in a bad way, but in a definitely a way that holds up really, really well. I love Ernie Hudson in this movie. He's one of my favorite characters. Mm -hmm. Brandon Lee is just fantastic. And it's heartbreaking. It is a really sad story. But then when it's also exhilarating when he gets his revenge, you want that for him. You are there with him. And you're like, yes, throw those knives (laughs) <laughs> or whatever he happens to be doing at the time, and that bit when he when he shows up at Cash Money's lair,
1: top down. At the I know.
0: <laughs> at the end, that is such a great yep.
1: sequence. I love that. You're all gonna die.
0: Oh, that's so good. <laughs>
1: Not a good day to be a bad guy, huh, Skank?
0: Now it is—it is a hot debate within the horror circles, and it has been for years. If this is a horror if movie, if this is a horror film no. or not—and nope. no, I don't think it is—but. It, doesn't it has mean it's somebody any less back
1: good. from the grave, but then again, like you said, so does High Plains Drifter, so does Pale Rider. I don't consider them horror movies either. You know, hey, whatever. If you do, great. Whatever gets you to watch this, just watch it. It's an awesome movie.
0: I think if I had to categorize it, like if somebody forced me to, I'd probably say dark fantasy. Yeah, you know, but or an
1: action it, flick because there lots it is of that, fights yeah, and gunfights. It is and, definitely
0: an action film too. But either way. It not being classified as horror, to me, doesn't mean I love it any less. You
1: know, it's just a fantastic film. Yeah. It is so good that we naturally give it a 5 out of 5. My mom was obsessed with this movie. Well, I mean, this movie was huge. Not only did it spawn like 4 or 5 different sequels, there was a Crow TV show, which was kind of a mess, even though it starred your boy, what's his name, Mark Dacostas? From Brotherhood of the Wolf? Yeah. Don't you have a lady boner for him? No. I thought he was the guy. Never mind. (laughs) I mean, he's alright.
0: Yeah, but I. I, Who's uh... the
1: guy that you just get all squishy over? Um, (laughs) He was in that ninja movie?
0: Oh! Like, I don't know where you're going with this. Okay, well, he's British, and uh, his name is...
1: Scott Adkins. Yes. Okay, I got him confused with DeCostas. They're both martial arts dudes, and they kind of look a little bit similar, at least to me.
0: Yeah, well, I actually... It's funny that you should have brought up DeCostas because I kind of think he looks a little bit like Brandon Lee.
1: Mm, A little, yeah. (laughs) But hell, there was even a Crow collectible card game. You know, when Magic first hit and everybody was like, Oh God, we can do that too. There was a collectible card game for anything under the sun back then. And the Crow had one. And I know this because I had some of the cards. (laughs) And it was a pretty good game. You know what? I just realized what I said was very
0: stupid. Because you, <laughs> cause you said that Mark Dacostas was in the Crow series, right? And yes. I was just like, oh, I always thought he kind of reminded me of Brandon Lee. Well, that's probably, that's probably why, why they, they
1: cast him, him yeah. in the show. <laughs> Duh. That and the fact he knows martial arts. So.
0: But Which, by the way, if anybody out there has not seen Brotherhood of the Wolf, I know we talked about it in a previous episode, but that was probably 100 years ago because it was yeah. the bees. <laughs> um,
1: excellent, excellent film uh, oh, as yes. well. And as I was saying the movie spawned sequels. And so here we are with the first sequel and the only sequel you will find in our library because the Crow sequels all kind of suck. I like this one, though. This one I do like. I don't love it, but there's parts of it I really do love. And that is The Crow City of Angels from 1996. Here we move the action from Detroit out to L.A., The little girl from the first movie is now a grown-up, hot tattoo chick. And she just happens to bump into another guy who was killed. And his son was killed with him. And so now the crow brings him back for revenge. Gee, what a small world.
0: And for some reason, he does exactly the same makeup that Brandon Lee did. Yeah,
1: they always do that. And they always kind of shoehorn it in. And it's... But it doesn't really make no. any sense. And it honestly didn't make any sense when Brandon Lee did it. But Well, no, it actually did because it was the, tra- the mask of tragedy. It was on his thing. He happened to look up at it, see it, and well, glide. That's, that's true. It that's was true. more organic. Here, it's just... Well, I guess they try to explain it. When he comes back from the dead, the girl from the first movie, mm-hmm. she finds him, and she's the one who paints his face. She recognizes that's he's right. another crow. Yeah. Like Brandon was, so. But I mean, in later ones, there's a guy who he gets fried in an electric chair, and just because the electricity, you know, flop, you know, frying his face, it burns the crow sigil onto his face, which was kind of dumb. And then there's one with what's his name, Edward Furlong, as the crow. Oh Jesus Christ, and that is stupid. And it is about Satanists. It's got the guy. Was he a fat crow? He was a chunky crow. And uh <laughs> it's about a group of Satanists led by oh, what's that guy? You don't like him. He played Angel.
0: Oh, David Boreanis.
1: David Boreanis. Yeah. yeah, that movie's kind of shit. <laughs> but this one does have some good things to it. It has Mia Kirshner as the now grown up little girl. I love her. Yeah, and she's hot. It has Iggy Pop, and I just I always like that guy. He is weird and bizarre. In and of himself. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the whole Jack Nicholson thing. You get him just for just so that he can be him. And he does that here. He's all he looks like he's stoned half the time, and he probably was. And he's one of the main baddies. And you also get Thomas Jane yeah. in a supporting role, also as a baddie. Oh, and you get the girl who was the yellow Power Ranger. In the first Power Rangers series, now, I am not a Power Ranger fan. That happened a little I was going
0: to say that means nothing to yeah, you. Yeah, after
1: my time. But I remember that was a big deal because she's a murdering psycho bitch in this movie. So, yeah, and it has a decent cast. The music is good, not as good, but it's okay. The main baddie is kind of a step down You have the awesome, gravelly-voiced Michael Wincott as the main baddie in the first movie. Here, you just get some guy who really likes BDSM. I mean, that's his big thing. He owns a club, and there's always people in rubber, and... (laughs) BDSM ain't evil. If you're into it, more power to you, as long as everybody you're playing with is into it as well. Mm -hmm. But back in, you know... Use your safe words. Exactly. But back in... uh, Mid-90s, it was still, woo, scary and taboo. It was before the internet. Yeah. The guy they got to play uh, the crow in this one, a French actor. Yeah, I was going to say he's French, but
0: he's from something... We know him from something else, and I like him. And I thought he was a really good choice for this, considering, you know, we don't
1: have Brandon Lee anymore. I thought he did a really good job. Vincent Perez. And he does a pretty good job. What I do... He's no Brandon Lee, but what I do like is they give him some more moments of uh, being psychotic, being crazy. He has a few good lines and a few good scene-chewing moments in here where he's just totally off his nut. And I like that because that was an aspect of The Crow, at least in the comic books. Brandon kind of touched on that here and there. Uh, He does the Jesus joke and he, you know, gets shot in the hand and he does some various things, but here... I thought they actually gave him a little bit more uh, leeway to act insane. Because, you know, he did just come back from the dead. That's got to be a hell of an experience. So I like that. I hate the look of this movie. This is uh, mid-90s, so you have color filters galore. And I know they did it for stylish reasons and whatever. And it's supposed to be L.A., so I guess L.A. is all piss-colored if any of our listeners live in L.A., please let us know if everything looks like piss.
0: I've been to L.A. numerous times, and I never noticed that. But
1: then maybe I couldn't see it through the fog. True. I mean, the smog. And the other color is purple, so everything is a like yellow and purple. And I sometimes like when directors play with coloring for dramatic effect. One of my favorites is the movie Vamp, where everything in that movie is purple and green, I think. Kind of like the mm-hmm. Joker colors. Mm-hmm. And that's done really well. Yeah, well down in the sewer
0: part it actually looks like creep show. Creepshow. Yeah. You know, it so yeah.
1: But here it just it's so overdone and it's so omnipresent. And again, I don't think the villain is all that good, and I really think the ending is corny as hell.
0: There For- were some really good sequences though, and some really good shots. I remember watching this. Paying attention to the framing of the shots, and some of these shots looked really, really good. I was impressed uh, with the filmmaking overall. I didn't like the bit where they kill the crow. No. And I don't mean the the man, the crow. I mean the actual crow. You know, where she gets him in the tower and...
1: Yeah. And then, like... He, this BDSM guy who also is a drug-dealing uh, kingpin also has a blind fortune teller servant it's just it's weird it's weird for the sake of being weird and uh they figure out the crow and all that stuff so they kill it and then the bad guy becomes a crow it it is it's way too convoluted for its own good and there's even some bits in here like there's a story element with the crow the man is like what happens next and sarah that's the little girl's name She tells him, well, you do what you're supposed to do here, and then you go back. And then he's like, what if I don't want to? And that right there kind of spits in the face of the whole idea of the crow, because it's all about getting revenge for your loved ones. You want to go back. You want to be with them. You're here to get revenge, to get justice for the wrong that was done to you. But once it's done, okay, I get to go back and be with my family and heaven and all that stuff. Here... He's like, I don't want to go back, and he actually drives off at the end on his motorcycle.
0: Which, if that's true, that in the universe of of this film, that you do get to see your family in the behind, in the beyond or whatever, that means he's abandoning his yeah, son. He's a dick,
1: and we know that's true if you you know follow the first one because at the end of that one, Brandon Lee sees his girlfriend coming back. Yeah, and she's welcoming him, you know, into the great beyond and stuff like that. As a crow purist, I just never liked that part. I mean, it's kind of like, you you dick. (laughs) That's your child. That's why you're doing all of this. And you, I don't want to go back. Fuck you. (laughs) Anyways, it's still a decent movie. It is better than the rest of the sequels that would come out after it. Uh, That's damning with faint praise. We both give it a 3.5 out of 5. And, you know, there's still talk every once in a while of another, of a Crow remake or reboot or something. The last time I heard anything about it, the guy who played Aquaman... Jason think, Momoa? Yeah, he was supposed to be the Crow. The Crow ain't supposed to be some big, huge Arnold Schwarzenegger-looking guy. He's supposed to be, like, an average dude. Right, right. I mean, who is going to mess with Jason Momoa to get him? <laughs> to kill him and his family. I mean, yeah, big, you know, big tough guys can get killed and murdered and their family killed just like anyone else. But it's I don't know. Seeing him come it just back. It doesn't
0: seem as likely. No.
1: Yeah. But
0: also, anyways. I don't know if it would work as well today. I mean, it's just it's so
1: 90s. Oh, it very much is. They would really have to. I mean, cuz again, it is a basic revenge tale. I mean, J O'Barr, the guy who wrote the comic, he lost his girlfriend to a junk driver, and this was his way of coping with that. He had a lot of anger, and he had to get it out, so he made the comic. Is that why you like it so much? It resonated with me. So I can understand that, and that's why I do... I legit love the comic, and I love the first movie, and I wish they would do something new with it. I don't know, just making it a generic action flick with Aquaman as the crow I just, eh. although I will give him some credit, he was Conan in the most recent Conan remake, and while I dislike that movie a whole lot, he played a pretty good Conan. But then Actually, again, like he was Jason Conan. Mama. He was huge. Yeah. So
0: I like Jason Momoa. I think he seems pretty like a straight up dude. Yeah. And I was a I was a fan of his for the you know five minutes he was on Game of Thrones. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Next up is a movie I love. Well, then why don't you... we are just cruising through the 90s is what we're doing, because this one is another one from 1992. 93. Oh. Because this is another one from (laughs) 1993, and it is The Crush, uh, starring Alicia Silverstone and Carrie Elwes, Mm -hmm. uh, our, our main people, but also that chick from Buffy plays her friend... Oh, yeah. Uh, Cheyenne. Oh, she was The just lesbian
1: girlfriend of Willow.
0: Yeah, she was in that movie that we watched recently. The It was a...
1: Lovecraft, Lovecraft thing. New, yeah. yeah, and it
0: was not good. And it was yeah. Amber Benson. That's right. That's name. it. Um, anyway, so it has Amber Benson in a smaller role. And uh, Jennifer... Jennifer... Jennifer, you know, from Nightmare 3 with the... Ruben? Yes. Damn, I'm good. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> and I didn't look that up. Carrie Elways, Amber Benson, Alicia Silverstone, and And I say that because Jennifer for Rubin. me to get
1: an actor's name... No, that's impressive. That's impressive. That's really impressive. I never do names.
0: <laughs> and uh, the idea is very simple. Alicia Silverstone is a 14-year-old girl... She who
1: don't look for 14. ...who
0: <laughs> lives... Uh, with her parents and they have a guest house that they have rented out to Carrie Elways, who is new in town. He just moved to town because he got a job at some big fancy magazine as a writer and he's looking for a place to live. And so they had their guest house for rent, which is over the garage out in the back. And Alicia eyes him and gets a crush. But She's not like normal 14-year-old girls when they get crushes. She's dangerous. Yeah. She will take out anybody who gets in her way. And it's, you know, one of those obsession movies. Uh, It's a thriller. It's not a horror film. But uh, I absolutely love it. I still own the VHS of this movie. Now, we watched the Blu-ray. We have the Blu-ray. Yeah. But I still own the VHS. Tell them the
1: story behind that.
0: The reason I own the VHS still is because the VHS has her original name.
1: What do you mean by that? The character's name.
0: Well, now, if you watch the film on DVD or Blu-ray, her name in the film is Adrian, But that is not correct. That was not her name in the original film. Her name in the original film, if you saw it in the theater, which I did, and if you owned it on VHS, which I do, her name <laughs> is Darian. And the reason they had to change it was because this was based on an actual person, and he used her real name. (laughs) So they got sued. And he had to change the name. I don't think that it was a one-to-one comparison as far as what happened with the actual Darian and what happened in this story. I don't know exactly how close it was. I haven't done that much research into it. So I don't know if it was just an inspiration type thing or if she really was this fucking psychotic. But it happened to him it's pretty much the same story. Like he moved into a place and they had a daughter and the daughter got a crush on him and she was a little psychotic about it. Now I don't think she killed anyone, but he then took that wrote the story about it. And then when, yeah, when it was found out that he used her actual name, he had to change it. So now you can't watch it with the real name unless you watch the VHS. But I just think that's an interesting tidbit. And for that reason, I will always have that VHS, and when I think of this movie, no matter how many times I've seen it, where they keep calling her Adrian, I'm like, nope, yo, Adrian. Uh, I'm like, nope, that is not her name. That is Darien. and in my hair he- and in my head, I hear Darien. But yeah, this is uh, like I said, it's a thriller. It's from the '90s. They were big back then, and
1: it's I also love it another movie, one of those time capsule movies. Oh, yeah. This movie is 90s as fuck.
0: Well, and they have a lot of music in the (laughs) movie. Yeah, that's what I mean. The
1: fashion, the music, it is just so steeped in the 90s. But I don't think that's a bad thing. No! I mean, as much as I give movies from the 90s, specifically horror movies from the 90s shit, and yes, there were some good ones, but there were uh, a whole lot of shit ones. I do really like this movie. I always liked this movie. It is a, just a good thriller, but I love thrillers, so, you know, it checks off those boxes for me.
0: Oh, it also has uh, Red, who plays her da- uh, Red from that 70s show. Mm-hmm. I can't remember his name, but he plays her father.
1: He was also the baddie from uh, Robocop.
0: And the guy at the end, who has a very tiny part as her psychiatrist,
1: who she then
0: transfers a new crush her and crush on, yeah. on to. We actually saw him the other day in something, and I don't remember what it was, but I was like, that's the Doctor from The Crush, in my <laughs> head. So there, you know, you can, it's one of those movies where you can pick out people that, you know, you'd come to know from other things later on. Because this was pre-Buffy, so nobody knew who Amber Benson was at the time. What's next? Well, oh, oh, uh rating. Yeah. Well, I give this a five. Of course. I give it a four.
1: That's a nice, solid four.
0: And honestly, that's higher than I would expect you to give it, so... Why
1: would you think I wouldn't give this a... Well,
0: because these kind of obsession thrillers tend to be my thing. You know, you don't tend to love them as much as I do. So I'm always pleased when you do.
1: Okay. The next one is a movie we recently picked up kind of on a lark. And by recently, I mean like a year or two ago. (laughs) I saw it in like the bargain, bargain, bargain bin on DVD. And like, you know what? It was like three bucks or something. I'm like, for three bucks, I'll give it another shot. when I first saw this movie, I was like, eh, it's okay. But it's one of those movies where it's it's sometimes fun. This plot thread is fun where somebody is a super genius and they know what everybody's going to do five steps in advance. They've planned everything. And, you know, but if you stop to think about it, it really starts to fall apart. The one I always remember the most is... Now you see me, the one about the magicians uh, man, and all every that. Every
0: time we see anything about that movie, you just start bitching.
1: Because it is so stupid. These plans are so elaborate that so much if if a fly farted in the room, it would somehow disturb everything, but they accounted for that. It just it's reality doesn't work that way. And I know it's a movie. Movies aren't reality, but I can only suspend my disbelief so far. And this movie tests my boundaries with that. But, upon watching it a second time, it is a decent enough watch. I'm talking about Cry Wolf from 2005. Uh, This is a movie about some kids in college, and they like to play a game. What? Because this... uh, We've had this movie way longer than one to two years.
0: Have we? Yeah. We actually showed it to your mom the first year I was up here. She was still
1: living in her original place. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, I stand corrected. But it, de- it definitely was a movie that I picked up on the Lark just to give it a second chance. And, you know, it is decent enough. so yeah, I mean, I I've it. seen it a couple times. Anyways, here are some kids in college. They are rich, upper-crust, preppy bastards. They like to play a game... You know, I think it's called like the killer or catch the killer or something where everybody's supposed to lie and one person and a group of friends is the killer and you're supposed to guess who it is. And if the killer makes it all the way to the end, he wins. Blah, blah, blah. Killers then-
0: are coming. <laughs> Killers are coming.
1: But then they decided to take it one step further when the new kid at school and the hot brainy chick decide to make a new game. But not tell anybody. They want to make up a rumor and get it going around college to see if it affects anyone. And the rumor is that there's a killer called The Wolf. And they design him in his camouflage jacket and his orange ski mask, and you know, he uses a knife, and they come up with this whole big backstory. But then it looks like he might be real. Or did somebody take their story and decided to make it real? And that's essentially the plot. there's a l- nice little mystery there here, is, you know,
0: I mean, like you said, it has it's. It- it has some conceits that you're just like, okay, It's whatever. way
1: too convoluted for its own good.
0: But it is entertaining, I think. And it has that, I can't remember her name, but that cute little redhead girl from, she was in... She uh, was in
1: Kick-Ass 2. She was in Wrong Turn. Mm-hmm. She um, was in
0: uh, My Little Eye. Oh, yeah. And she was big for like one hot minute. And yeah. then, uh, then I just don't see her anymore. For all I know, she probably
1: went to TV. Everybody seems to go to TV. Well, nowadays, TV is where it's at. Lindy Booth. As Dodger. It also has Jared Padalecki from the uh, Supernatural show in it. Gary Cole. So, I mean, there's there's some... Oh, and also Bon Jovi. (laughs) Oh, yeah, he plays a teacher. Yeah. So it has a decent cast, and it is fun. It's definitely of its time. I'm with this movie all the way up to kind of like the end, when it starts getting really out of control, and you start thinking, you know, just one thing. One thing would have changed, and suddenly everything would have fallen apart. But, you know, good thing they planned this out so perfectly, and it's just, eh. But for a decent watch every once in a while, eh, it's pretty good. Jamie gives it a four, and I give it a three. Eh, I like it. I don't love it. I just like it. Another 90s movie. Man, the 90s liked the seas. And this is... Cube, from 1997. This is a damn good movie. It was so good that they made multiple sequels, and I don't think any of them were ever as good as the original. In fact, I don't think we own any of the sequels. Well, the concept alone has become
0: a a, a trope, And, and I think this may be the first film to do that, but... Don't quote me on that because I haven't actually done any research on it. But it's just, as far as my memory is concerned, it's a, it's the first movie I can think of where you just pit a bunch of strangers together
1: and see Stick what Stick them in happens. a room and, you know, there's but a ticking clock and they got to get out.
0: Maybe it has something to do with things like the real world,
1: you know. Oh, maybe. Putting, pitting
0: a bunch of strangers together. Maybe that's how the whole idea of that got into... And then, you know, led into the later, the cringe TV reality shows like Survivor and and The Bachelor and all those things where you throw all these strangers together, watch them interact, watch them fight. And then one by one, well, on TV, they don't get picked off. They get (laughs) voted off or whatever. But uh, in this one, you know,
1: people get picked off. Well, the initial idea, the impetus of this movie was some filmmakers were deciding we need to make a movie, but we don't have money. So it has to be cheap. And so it. this is literally a one-room movie. It all takes place on one set. And all they do is they change the color and the, the lighting, lighting. Yeah. around them. Yeah. So it makes it look like it's bigger and more impressive than it is. Or different rooms or yeah.
0: whatever. But yeah, it's a very simple, cheap Way to do it. And effective.
1: And I, it works. I love when a movie can do the whole run one room thing, but do it well. Mm-hmm. And with a very limited cast, and just, it's it's a testament to creativity and good storytelling. Here, a bunch of people wake up, they remember... Oh
0: no, you know who did it first? Twilight Zone. Which one? With
1: the, uh, the one with the dolls, or the toy box. Kind of. It's not this, but yeah, I love that episode too. It's... Five characters in search of an exit, I think it's called. And, uh, yeah, I love that episode. Here, a bunch of people wake up. They remember who they are, but they don't remember how they got here. And they wake up in this strange, cubed room. And it looks like, you know, kind of sci-fi-ish, and it's all lit up certain colors.
0: They're all wearing a jumpsuit. They have the same uniform on. Yeah. They have the same shoes, the same jumpsuits, the same... But some people have been allowed to keep certain personal objects, like glasses.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if they need them and stuff like that. They soon discover that, yeah, they're in this big cube, and each side of the cube has a door. They can go through and get into another cubed room. But some of the room have death traps. And that's, you know, that was initially probably the thing that drew me to this, because I really like these death traps. They're pretty elaborate. They're pretty fun. In fact, they show one where a guy jumps in a room and he gets cubed. This big uh, steel grate slices him into itty-bitty bite-sized chunks. And then they have one where it's flames, and one where it spits acid, and one where it shoots out spikes. And so it's very creative, and the whole idea is, first off, where are we? Who put us here? Why did they put us here? Why us? It's a mystery that keeps evolving as you go.
0: Yeah, and then it's kind of like in the vein of, even though it came before it, something like Saw. Yes. Um, or uh, The Circle, which is a more recent yes. film that's very similar to this one, only it doesn't involve people, you know, going room to room. It involves people. Standing in a circle and they can't leave the circle, but then they have to kind of choose, like basically vote people off, yeah. like choose. And that was a fun. Uh, one. That is a good movie, and it's something that's a movie that I didn't even hear about No. until recently. And I want to say it's from 2018, but Sounds someone, about right. oh, uh, Kanan Becker, oh, okay, uh, recommended that film from um, Ghost Pirate Entertainment. So uh, we watched it. It's on Netflix. It's really good if you like stuff like that.
1: But stuff like this, uh, you mentioned Saw, that movie had the same kind of origin. They were thinking, how do we make a movie as cheap as possible? Well, the way you do that, one location. And while Saw does have a few other locations, 90% of that movie is in that damn bathroom. Yeah. So, I mean, that just, that's the cheapest you can make any sort of movie. I mean, why do you think Night of the Living Dead takes place in one farmhouse? (laughs) So on and so forth. But here, you get a bunch of people, you know, it's aliens! No, it's the government testing us. And there is, like, a riddle you gotta solve, and people have certain attributes that would help them survive. But sometimes that doesn't, like, one of the people who wakes up out of the blue just happens to be, like, The best prison escape artist ever. The Rin. Yeah, he's busted out of like four or five different prisons. No prison can hold him. So you think he's going to be the badass. He's like, you know, you're going to do what I say when I say. And if not, I'm going to leave you. I'm not carrying any dead weight. If you want to make it out of here alive, you follow me. You shut up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he dies. (laughs) So, you know, shit, (laughs) he was the best chance of getting out of here. And he's dead.
0: Yeah, and this is one of those movies that, you know, puts strangers together and then, you know, the assholes start to rise the top.
1: Well, of course, because whenever you get people in a room together, someone's going to be a dick.
0: Yeah, I think it illustrates that well, you yeah. know, especially people under duress. Mm-hmm. And the acting isn't always great.
1: No, um, it's decent. I don't think anybody here is horrible.
0: No, well, I'm not in love with the... Our main, I don't want to give away who it is, but our main antagonist, I guess, is, well, I guess, the Cube, I guess, is probably the main antagonist. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, the cop. I'm not in love with his acting.
1: No, he's a bit much. I think he starts off okay, but when he starts acting differently, it's a bit much. But yeah, this is a very good movie, very low budget, but very effective So effective that, yeah, they've had, like, three or four different cubes. There was Hypercube and this cube, and they keep trying... Of course, because it's sequels, you got to outdo yourself, so now you have... This cube had, like, a thousand rooms. The next cube has, like, you know, a hundred thousand possibilities. And then the one after that is, like, a million! Is it's okay. Settle the fuck down. The original cube was enough. It was scary enough. It was deadly enough. It was messed up enough. You don't need to try to make it holograms and cyborgs or any other stupid shit. I've never actually seen any of
0: the sequels. I remember when Hypercube came out, but I never watched it.
1: i seen the first sequel, and it was okay, but it's definitely a step down. I saw the next one after that, and I really disliked that. And that's where I pretty much called it. I never saw anything past that. As for this movie, it is a very good uh, thriller horror movie, people in a room trying to get out. It's like an escape room, kind of. But there's, you know, death death traps galore. Plus, you got people infighting and trying to figure out the mystery of what's going on. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It is very original, and it was done exceptionally well. So well that Jamie and I both give it a 4 out of 5.
0: Right, next up, we have, honestly, a very good Stephen King adaptation that I think has gotten some love in recent years, but for a long time seemed like people didn't love it. I always did, even though it makes me cry.
1: What doesn't make you cry?
0: (laughs) And that is Cujo from 1983 starring uh, D. Wallace and uh, that guy from Hardcastle and McCormick. I can't remember (laughs) remember his name. Uh, Christopher Stone Mm -hmm. is in this film who is D. Wallace's real-life husband and uh, was D. Wallace's real-life husband. He plays... Uh, a guy she's having an affair with in this one. Because she's a dirty whore. And uh, it has Danny Pintoro from Who's the Boss? The, oh, little, yeah. the little boy. hmm And they have a family. The father works in advertising. Did you say what it was? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the father <laughs> works in advertising, uh, and the mom is uh, a stay-at-home mom. And a whore. And... Uh, <laughs> And Dad goes on a business trip, and while he is away, she's busy being a whore. She has to <laughs> she has to take the car into a mechanic that they just found, who lives out in the sticks. And he and his son, played by I don't know if it's Billy or Bobby Jacoby, one of the Jacoby brothers, I can never remember which ones which. But uh, they have a dog, a big Saint Bernard, a friendly, adorable. Lovable Saint Bernard named
1: Cujo, but who just happens to be like three hundred pounds. <laughs> but
0: Cujo chases after a rabbit, and follows the rabbit down a hole, or sticks his head down a hole where the rabbit went, and it gets his nose gets bitten by a bat, and so Cujo's contracts rabies. So this is a Stephen King story that uh, one of the few, I think, that are at least that have been movie adaptations that have no supernatural elements. This is just a dog with rabies. Unfortunately, people come into contact with him and he ends up taking him out, including Sheriff Lobo's deputy. I never knew his name, but did you ever watch that show?
1: I'm aware of it. I don't know if I I can't remember if I've seen it or not. But that's
0: that's what I always think of him from, uh, Sheriff Lobo's deputy. And uh, it just so happens that the mechanic is away as well because... He just came into some money and he's going to Vegas for Atlantic City. He's going somewhere for the for the weekend and his wife is out of town visiting her mother, although I think she's actually just leaving him. <laughs> I don't think I don't think she's coming back. Uh, so when Doesn't he get killed? The father? He does, yeah, because... The
1: father's friend gets killed.
0: Yeah, and then the dad goes over because he's going over to pick him up because he's going to go to Vegas with him, and when he finds his dead body, Cujo is still there, and Cujo takes him out, too, so he's dead,
1: but... He was kind of an ass. The
0: mother and the son are visiting her family, and so when Dee Wallace brings the car... To with her son. To with her son. The car stalls. No one's home, so she can't get the car fixed. She can't get any help. She this can't, was before cell phones. She can't use the phone, and her car will not go. So she's trapped here, and she can't even get out of the car. That's because Cujo. Cujo. is there, and he is in full-blown rabies mode. Like, he is slobbering and... Also, it's
1: the middle of the summer.
0: Oh, yeah. And it's
1: exceptionally hot. Summer.
0: And they have to keep the windows rolled up, even. And they're dehydrating. And uh, Danny, well, his name is Tad in the movie, uh, Danny Pintoro. Uh, but Tad, at one point, passes out in the car. And Dee Wallace does an excellent job. This is pretty much her movie. And she oh, does yeah. an incredible job of being a good mom, mm-hmm. risking her life for her son,
1: and uh, she, she, she sells it. down with Cujo, and Cujo easily outweighs her. <laughs> oh yeah!
0: And he uh, at one point he takes a nasty bite right out of her thigh, and she the screams that she I have always loved Dee Wallace's scream. Mm-hmm. Always, she is to me one of the best screamers in Hollywood. I just love her to death.
1: She's a queen of the screams. She is,
0: and when she sells something she fucking sells it yeah. and that whole scene or which is pretty much like a third of the movie when they are trapped in the car and dehydrating and it's hot and she's you know she's frustrated she's scared she's trying to keep her son calm and in the middle of all that they're being stalked by a murderous dog who through no fault of his own is just on a rampage and I it does make me cry because I feel sorry for cujo I well, yeah, I hate can't seeing him suffer like that. It's terrible. But there's even a point where the cop comes and they think they're going to be saved. Surprise! You know, we get uh, a scene where, for us, the audience, you think that the mailman's going to be going out there. And then at the last minute, right before he walks out the door, they're like, wait, 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 wait. Bring that back. They're out of town. Yeah. So he doesn't go. And you're like, God damn it.
1: You know, so... Meanwhile, Dad is out in L.A. or something because, like you said, he's an advertisement... Advertisement man, and they just had a major catastrophe with a breakfast cereal. Nothing wrong here. Yeah, he's trying to fix it, so that's why he's out of town. So, yeah, you get this woman and a little kid in a little tiny car under the hot, you know, summer sun with a giant, slobbering, bloody, disgusting dog that just wants to rip your face off.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. I think that they do a really nice job of folding in the family drama that's there, along with the harrowing situation with the dog. I think it's a really good adaptation. Cujo is a book of, of kings that I love, mm-hmm. but it's also one that he doesn't remember writing. <laughs> and in Cocaine the, is a hell of a drug. In the actual book... Tad gets killed yeah. no well he doesn't get killed but he dies yeah he dies he in the car it. and uh, he was he, to this day if you ask stephen king about it he'll just be like i don't even remember doing that he does not remember it but i think it's one of the best books he's ever written so you know maybe he needs to fuel be, up uh, maybe <laughs> i was actually talking about maximum overdrive uh, at work today with uh, one of my coworkers. And I was like, you know, he was coked out of his mind when he made that movie. And they were like, really? And I'm like, hell yeah! Like, I was like, he'll admit it. Have you seen the movie? Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. It was because I, I called my computer an asshole. <laughs> and then she started cracking up, and, and she's like, you just called your computer an asshole. And I was like, and, but when she said it, she sounded like Stephen King <laughs> in the movie, in, in Maximum Overdrive. You
1: just called your computer an asshole! And,
0: uh, yeah, when he's like, you know, this machine just called me an asshole. Yeah, and anyway. That has nothing to do with anything. We're talking about Cujo, and I love it.
1: Yeah. I really like it. I don't love it. I don't even love the book. I think it's solid. I think it's good. But it's just kind of like, eh, yeah, it's, it's a very basic story. Yeah. Woman and Child, menaced by a Dog of Rabies. That's it. I mean, the book is probably one of the shortest books Stephen King ever wrote. Because you know, God knows, he don't write. But anything I think that might like be why pages.
0: it's one of my favorites. Because he doesn't go on and on and on and on and on yeah. for seven pages about an ashtray. Like he not, and I'm not disparaging King's writing. I'm a huge fan. He just loves ashtrays. But when this is a very stripped down story, and he still well, manages to get the people stuff in there, but I
1: think that he doesn't
0: flourish it too much. Well, I mean, not
1: every story needs to be a novel. This could easily. You know, I think it falls in that gray range between a novella and a novel. But I think because it's Stephen King, they're just, you know, fine, it's a new novel. But it is good. I mean, for what it is, it's very well done. The acting's great. I love Cujo in this, and I do feel sorry for him. Because he's just a dog doing a, you know, being a dog, and he gets sick. He can't help it. He's not evil. He's sick.
0: Yeah. And... There are some really nice shots in this film. Oh, yeah. uh, no one really ever talks about the filmmaking when they're talking about Cujo. But there is a one particular shot that I adore. And it's where you see Cujo cresting the hill in the morning mist. And it's it looks it's like foggy and gothic looking. And here he comes to me. That's a beautiful shot. And there are are several of those in this film.
1: It looks good. Well, you know, it was done by Louis Teague. He also gave us Alligator. Another one that I love. More to the point, he gave us Cat's Eye. Another one that I love. That was was his next movie after this.
0: Well, and he actually got Cat's Eye because of what he did with Cujo. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. You give it a five. I give it a four. It is a good movie. You've probably already seen it because, you know, it's Stephen King. But if you haven't, check it out. And we are now up to our last movie of this episode.
0: And it's also the last movie in this series to date.
1: It is Cult of Chucky from 2017. It is what gave us the whole Chucky TV series in which there's now a whole little army of Chucky's running around. And basically that's the idea of this one. Chucky has now figured out, because of... Did he get it for the Voodoo from Dummies book? or? Yep. Okay. <laughs> he was reading the Voodoo from Dummies book and figured out how to slice his soul up into itty-bitty parts so now he can affect multiple dolls. You don't know that going into this movie, so you think it's just another Chucky movie, and it is. You get the... Uh... Return of Andy Barkley. Yeah, but he actually popped up at the very end of the last movie, you also get Brad Dorf's daughter, Fiona? Yes. And she was the main character in the last movie. Also she- the main character in this movie. Yeah, she carries over to this movie. And at the end of that movie, she's blamed for all the killing and she's sent to jail. But because she's blamed everything on Chucky the doll and nobody believes her, they think she's insane, so they stick her into an insane asylum. And then once you know it, here comes Chucky again. But what makes this different, and I like when a movie actually expands on what did before, is, like I said, the aforementioned lots of Chucky's, because soon there's a Chucky doll, and then there's another Chucky doll, and then there's another Chucky doll, and so you know Chucky's out there running around, but initially you think it's, well, it's one of these dolls, and that's the whole point, you're not, you don't know which one is Chucky. So, you know, you'll think it's this doll, but it won't be. It'll be the other doll. Except you come to realize, no, it's all the dolls. He is all the Chucky dolls. They are all now Charles Lee Ray. And so, yeah, it's, it's got a lot of callbacks. They really pay homage and lots of nods and winks to the previous Chucky and Child's Play films. That's because, you know, Don Mancini, he is you know, ruled over the Chucky franchise from the beginning, and he still does, all with the exception of the remake. One of the rare franchises. Yeah. That has been shepherded by the same guy from the beginning. And I think that really pays off here, because yeah, he he knows the mythology. He knows the characters. Intimate. Instead of just having hey, remember this person? He thinks of a real reason and he, I don't know, he just gives everything a lot of weight. You know, he is the Child's Play franchise. I mean, I thought the Child's Play remake was fine and good and all that, but this is the Chucky to beat all Chucky's. You know, this Brad Dorff doing the voice, Don Mancini doing the writing, sometimes the directing, and even when not doing that, he's producing and overseeing everything. So he's definitely guiding this series where he wants to go.
0: Yeah, this also has one of my favorite things... Which is a shit ton of TV crazy people. Yeah. <laughs> I love TV asylum people. Like, yeah. you know, I don't think anybody is literally licking a window in this movie, but it's that kind of crazy. You've got the woman who thinks she's a ghost. Mm-hmm. And that is one of my favorite lines in any child's play movie ever is where she's like, Can you see me? Yeah.
1: And he- she sees Chucky moving through the halls, but because she's insane, she just, oh, well. And she asked the doll, can you see me? And he's like, uh, yeah. She's like, and he's like, are you fucking with me? <laughs> and he's like, you know what? I
0: gotta go do this. But after that, I'm coming for you. You're next. And it's just hilarious. To me, it's right up there within the first movie where the, he's on the elevator and that couple gets what in. Like, what an ugly doll. What an ugly doll.
1: Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, this one is a lot of fun. I was glad... I mean, I'm not a huge fan of all the Chucky films. We go, in this house, from Child's Play to... Oh, what the hell was Curse it? of Chucky. Curse <laughs> of Chucky, and then Cult of Chucky.
0: I do like... Uh, you know, I like the second one. I think the third one is
1: watchable. Yeah. And
0: I am even a fan of Bride, and I haven't seen Seed in many, many years, but I did used to really like it, uh, just because I thought it was you know, funny, but I know you're not a
1: fan of Bride and Seed. Bride, I can stand a little bit. Seed, I think, is abhorrent. I actively dislike that movie. But, you know, whatever, each their own. Maybe we'll get the whole Chucky box set or something one day. But as of right now, we don't. But we do have this one because it is a very solid and it's a very fun movie. Uh, they do a lot of the usual hijinks you would expect from Chucky. There's a lot of good kills, and of course Brad Dourif is just awesome as the voice of Chucky. Yeah. Jamie likes this one so much she gives it a five. I like it as usual, a little bit less. I give it a four.
0: Yep, and that's going to be where we're ending today. That is the last movie we have to cover because we stalled out at A Cure for Wellness. So now uh, we got to
1: start watching movies again. Yeah. <laughs> A whole bunch of movies.
0: But uh, that also means that we should be getting close to the end of the seas, because we are in the
1: CUs, Yeah, and there's not going
0: to be much after that.
1: So. God, I hope not. There's, I mean, I like the movies we have in our collection, obviously, but yeah, we've been in the seas for a long time. I just want a, a fresh letter, yeah. or something. Now, oh, you gonna,
0: we got to do that 50-pack.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to veto that again.
0: What? You can't keep pushing it off. Yes,
1: I can. I'm a man. I can do what I want. <laughs> we will do that at the end of the alphabet. You know, 20 years then, from right, now. <laughs> then you're going to
0: be stuck with six fifty 50-packs in a <laughs> row, and you're going to be pissy about it.
1: I don't want to watch those fucking monkey movies
0: anymore. I think we covered, as a matter of fact, I was told by a very Knowledgeable source that we covered all of those. Who is that source?
1: Who told you? Besides you making shit up, I mean, me making shit up. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, At any rate, that's going to end it here for this segment and this episode. And as usual, we would love to thank you guys for being out there, for spending time with us, and for all the support. We appreciate you and we love you very much.
1: Yes, we do. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Bye bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for visiting the House of Salmons. We hope to see you back very soon. Until then, come chat with Brian and me on our Facebook group page at Horror in the House of Salmons. And if you like what we do here and want to hear some bonus episodes, consider being a patron at patreon.com slash house of salmons. Special thanks to Rick Morgan for composing our theme music.